Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Morning, everyone. It's Friday. We're so glad you're starting your day with us. Good morning. Good morning. It's good Friday. Week. We yes. made it through the week. It was we a good week. It. There's also a lot of news, as there has been all week. Absolutely. And there's more today. Let's get started for five things to know this Friday, August 18th. This breaking overnight. Hurricane Hillary intensifying in the Pacific. It is now a major Category 4 hurricane. It's expected to bring flooding and rain to California and the Southwest over the weekend. And we have more breaking news. This out of Hawaii. Maui's emergency management administrator quit abruptly a day after he defended not sounding the island sirens as deadly wildfires tore through Lahaina. He cited health reasons. And also, this just in, FEMA's disaster fund is slipping into the red, and hurricane season hasn't even peaked yet. Now, pressure is on for Congress to pass a spending bill. Also new this morning, former President Trump wants to push back the trial date in the federal election subversion case by a lot. The special counsel wants January. It's months from now. Trump's team wants April of 2026, but three years from now. And federal prosecutors are recommending the toughest January 6th sentence yet for two leaders of the Proud Boys, 33 years in prison. Prosecutors write the foot soldiers of the right aim to keep their leader in power. They failed. They are not heroes. They are criminals. Seen in this morning starts right now. And we're going to start with breaking news this morning. A major storm threatening the West Coast. Hurricane Hillary has now intensified into a powerful Category 4 storm as it nears Cabo San Lucas in Mexico. That storm could also bring heavy rain, flooding, and powerful winds to California's Baja in the southwest this weekend. Hurricane Hillary is expected to weaken as it heads north, but if it hits California as a tropical storm, it would be a rare and unprecedented event, the first one to do so in 84 years. So we begin this hour with our meteorologist, Derek Van Dam. I think anyone waking up this morning hearing a hurricane is headed toward Southern California is going to be very confused, as I was, because it doesn't happen a lot. Yeah, you got to go back to 1939, the last time we had a tropical storm make landfall in Southern California. So this is significant, and people are going to be caught off guard with this system. We're closely monitoring it, but this storm intensified by 75 miles per hour just in the past 24 hours. So it is a Cat 4, winds right now at 145 miles per hour. When will we feel the impacts? Well, the Baja Peninsula right here, this is part of Mexico, of course, they'll feel impacts by Saturday morning. But as late as early as Saturday evening into Southern California, certainly into the day on Sunday and once again on Monday across much of the southwestern U.S. But this storm is going to encounter some significantly cooler water compared to where it's um, moving across right now. And this is going to significantly weaken the storm as it approaches California. But it's likely, and there's explicit wording from the National Hurricane Center, that this will still pack the punch of a tropical storm as it reaches, let's say, San Diego, perhaps into Los Angeles. Now, this is a game of miles. If this storm stays offshore, we have more coastal impacts, erosion, large waves, rip currents, and even the urban flooding just because of the proximity 
proximity to the larger cities. But if it moves inland, it starts to get sheared apart by the Baja Peninsula. It brings the flash flood and wind threat more inland. Certainly mudslides and the uh, flooding is a big concern here as the potential exists for upwards of a year's worth of rain, if not more, out of this storm system within a, a period of a day or two, really, a significant rainfall threat for much of the southwestern U.S., including our largest populations from L.A. to San Diego. Poppy, a, Phil? A year's worth of rain. Derek, I, we keep you agile yeah. in your job. There's yeah. no shortage of weather <laughs> uh, events and yeah. climate issues you're dealing with. We've been following these wildfires in Canada. They have thousands under evacuation orders. What's mm. the latest on that? Yeah, I mean, look at the smoke just billowing out from these fires across the uh, Northwest Territory. And the fires that are impacting Yellowknife, with over 20,000 people being evacuated from this capital city, this is significant because we have a cold front that's going to move through this area. So what that'll do is bring the potential for thunderstorms. So more ignition chances for additional fires to form. Of course, we need the rain, but it won't be enough to really quell the wildfires because the winds will pick up with the passage of this front. 25 to 35 miles per hour, not to mention the degradation of the quality of our air that we continue to breathe across the Midwest. We have air quality alerts stretching from central Canada all the way into uh, the northern portions of the country. And just look at this, Poppy and Phil. This year's wildfire burned acres eclipsing the past 40 years for Canada. Wow, that puts everything into perspective. Derek Van Dam, thank right. you on both fronts. And this just in this morning, keep in mind with Hillary. Uh, Hurricane Hillary heading towards the West Coast. FEMA is already running out of disaster relief money, and that's before the Atlantic hurricane season even really starts to ramp up. It's been a record-breaking year with more than a dozen billion-dollar weather disasters coast to coast, from catastrophic flooding to tornado outbreaks to crippling winter storms. And that's not even counting the recent historic floods across the Northeast and that devastating Maui wildfire that has become the deadliest U.S. fire in over a century. So a FEMA official tells CNN the agency's relief fund could be used up by the end of this month unless Congress acts. Priscilla Alvarez joins us live at the White House this morning. Well, that's terrifying. Is there an assurance Congress will act? Well, it's going to be top of mind when they return. But the bottom line when I talk to officials about this is that it would delay that critical recovery if FEMA does not get these funds. As you mentioned there, it's been a record-breaking year for expensive disasters, and that's put an intense strain on their funds, which could be depleted by mid to end of August. Now, the White House has been monitoring this, and in their supplemental request to Congress, they included an additional $12 billion for these funds. Now, the FEMA administrator was asked about this at a White House briefing this week, and she also conceded that they have enough funds for the initial response to Maui, but they still need more to get all the recovery there. Take a listen. We have enough funding uh, to support the, the ongoing response efforts because we take events like this into consideration. Um, but uh, it would delay, if we don't have additional funding, it would delay uh, some of the recovery projects and push them into next year. Now, a FEMA official also tells me that a lot of these funds go to prep. So if we know that hurricane is coming, for example, that you just mentioned or any other sort of natural disaster, they can start to send supplies and people there knowing that there's going to have to be recovery efforts on the back end. But if they don't have those funds, they are may not be able to do that work. And so all of that would slow down recovery. So, of course, this is fueling concern within the agency. And the ask is going to Congress for them to work on this as these natural disasters continue to happen. 
Congress that is not currently in session for the month of August. And that supplemental request included Ukraine funding, too. So the pathway right now still very up in the air. It's very important reporting. Priscilla Alvarez, thank you. Also, this new overnight, Maui's emergency management chief has resigned. This as outrage grows in the wake of the catastrophic wildfire that has killed at least 111 people. He was facing serious criticism for not activating warning sirens as this wildfire closed in on Lahaina. You see it right there. His resignation comes a day after he publicly defended that decision, though. Hawaii's water management agency also under scrutiny this morning. We're now learning a state official may have delayed giving permission to use extra water to fight the flames as this disaster unfolded. Also this just in, the ATF says it's sending a team of investigators to figure out how the fire started. And this overnight, Maui's mayor tells CNN close to half of the disaster area has been searched. More than 40 cadaver dogs are on the scene searching for human remains in the scorched ruins. Our Randy Kay has been digging in on all of this. Here's her reporting. So many of us residents felt like we had absolutely no warning. Hawaii has one of the largest public safety outdoor siren warning systems in the world. Sirens that were silent as wildfires raged. Question is, why? First, it was this. It would not have saved those people on the, on the mountainside. Do you regret not sounding the sirens? I, I do not. The sirens, as I had mentioned earlier, is used primarily for tsunamis. That's what the head of Maui's emergency management agency said Wednesday, before suddenly resigning a day later. But even before that press conference ended, his reason had changed. This time, suggesting the sirens weren't used because people wouldn't have been able to hear the warning. It's an outdoor siren, so a lot of people who are indoors, air conditioning on, whatever the case may be, they're not going to hear the siren. Plus, the winds were very gusty and everything. uh, I heard it was very loud, and so they wouldn't have heard the sirens. Same story with Hawaii's governor. First this. Sirens were typically used for tsunamis or hurricanes. To my knowledge... At least I never experienced them uh, in use for fires. Then minutes later, another explanation. This time, the governor suggested at least some of the sirens were broken. The sirens were essentially uh, immobilized, we believe, we believe, by the extreme heat that came through. Some were broken and we're investigating that. Yet that doesn't all track with the county's own webpage, MauiSirens.com which clearly states how the siren system is capable of alerting residents to multiple disasters, including wildfires. Emergency alert. And we also found this explainer about the siren's uses on Hawaii's Emergency Management Agency's webpage. We also use sirens for hurricanes, brush fires, flooding, lava, hazmat conditions, uh, or even a terrorist event. This map, also from the county's page, shows where the warning sirens are located. According to the state, there are about 400 sirens statewide, including 80 on Maui. And in the historic town of Lahaina, where more than 100 people were killed in the flames, there are five sirens. Five sirens that were not used to warn those in grave danger. Instead, officials say they chose to send alerts by text message to cell phones, as well as alerts on landlines and through TV and radio. It is our practice to use the most effective means of conveying an emergency message to the public during a wildlife, wild, wildland fire. While that may have worked in some cases, the wildfire moved so swiftly, it knocked out power and cell service. So how were residents supposed to receive those warnings? 
there's no warning at all there's not a a siren not a phone alert not a nothing not a call randy k cnn critically important reporting and so many unanswered questions this morning. And a recognition that this is going to take so much time yeah. and the recovery for the families themselves, but also trying to figure out what exactly went wrong and why. So, you don't, so it doesn't happen like exactly. this again. Uh, Randy, thank you for that. Meantime, Special Counsel Jack Smith wants Donald Trump's election subversion trial to start next year. Trump and his lawyers wanted to start in about three years, in 2026. And Trump suddenly canceled a news conference where he claimed he was going to present, quote, New evidence of the non-existent fraud in Georgia's 2020 presidential election. New reporting behind that change of plans. That's coming up. New development this morning in the federal election subversion case against former President Donald Trump. His legal team says again they don't want to have a trial in the middle of the election or even in the year after the election. They want a trial in April 2026. Our Caitlin Polans joins us live in Washington with more. Good morning. Is this them saying, well, investigators got three years. We want three years. Good morning. That's one of the things that they're saying. But what they're really saying is they're complaining about how much they have to go through to prepare for this trial. They're saying that there are millions of documents, 11 million pages of records that they're going to need to read one by one. That's not exactly how it works in preparing for trial. The government does turn over to defense teams lots and lots of information, but they also spell out for them. These are the ones that are the important documents that you should look at. But the Trump team, they are saying it's so many records. We would have to read War and Peace essentially so many times or the equivalent of War and Peace so many times in order to get through all of this for trial. Also, we're very busy because Donald Trump has other things that he's needing to prepare for. There's going to be hearing dates for other criminal indicted, criminally indicted cases before this trial as well. And so everything is going to converge in a way where we need a lot more time. April 2026 is what they're asking for. They say that the government's objective is clear to deny President Trump and his counsel a fair ability to prepare for trial. The court should deny the government's request. Now, Poppy and Phil, whether Judge Tanya Chutkin is going to buy that argument uh, still remains to be seen. She is going to have them in court in a couple weeks to talk about a trial date and has already indicated that there's a couple reasons why why this trial may need to go to trial quickly. Mm -hmm. And the Justice Department has argued that one reason is that the American public deserves to see this case settled because it is about an election. Of course, Donald Trump is running for re-election. Caitlin, there was a big number that stood out to me uh, last night in terms of what uh, the Justice Department is asking for in terms of the length of the pr prison sentence for the leaders of the Proud Boys. You've got some reporting on this. It's about their role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. What can you tell us? Because it is a long time. Yeah, it's a whopper of a number from the Justice Department asking to sentence the leaders of the Proud Boys on January 6th to essentially three decades in prison each. They're asking for 33 years in prison for Enrique Tarrio, the chairman of the Proud Boys, who wasn't even on the grounds on January 6th, but was purged from Washington, D.C., and cheering on the others over text. They're also asking for 33 years for Joseph Biggs, 30 years for Zachary Real, 27 years for Ethan Nordine, and then another man who bashed in a window, one of the first pieces of the Capitol to fall, Dominic Pizzola. They're asking for 20 years. But this 
court document was a reminder when you read it just how serious the violence was on January 6th, how there was uh, now asserted by a jury's finding here that there was a uh, an effort of people who came together, who plotted out how they would lead a mob inside the Capitol if they had the opportunity. The Justice Department wrote about these four members of the Proud Boys uh, that are convicted of seditious conspiracy. They brought that army of violence to the Capitol to exert their political will. For years, these defendants intentionally positioned themselves at the vanguard of political violence in this country. They brought that violence to the Capitol on January 6th in an effort to change the course of American history. And the sentences imposed by this court should reflect the seriousness of their offenses. So the seriousness should not be lost of January 6th as we head forward in still watching rioters being sentenced in court. This sentencing is not going to happen for another couple weeks, but it is certainly a court proceeding that will have quite a bit of importance, especially if these men get the most severe sentence related to January 6th and even a longer sentence potentially from what the Justice Department is asking than the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, and others. Wow. Caitlin, keep us posted. Thank you for that reporting. And now in a sign of, of the weight and potential magnitude of the charges outlined in that Georgia indictment, a somewhat rare move from former President Trump. He's scrapping his plans, or at least stated plans, for a Monday night news conference in New Jersey, where he was promising to introduce new evidence of fraud in Georgia's 2020 presidential election, even though no fraud has ever been substantiated. And trust me, people have looked. The about face, it's unfolding as Trump's legal teams fine-tunes its plans for his surrender. The deadline, of course, to turn himself in is one week from today. CNN's Elena Treen is live with part of this story. Um, Elena, I don't recall a lot of times when it seems like Trump is listening to either his advisors or his legal team. Is that what happened here? Uh, I think so, yes, Phil. From our conversations, uh, my colleague Caitlin Collins and I um, have been hearing a lot about this press conference. And I think there was a lot of skepticism about it, and understandably so. And part of the reason for that, Phil and Poppy, is many of his advisors were caught off guard when they saw that Donald Trump was posting about this, quote, major news conference that he was going to be holding on Monday. We spoke with uh, some people immediately after he made that post. And I think few people in uh, Trump's inner circle and some of his advisors didn't know that he was going to be saying that. And so um, behind the scenes, there was some concern from Donald Trump's team and some of his lawyers about, you know, holding a press conference on the baseless claims that he's being charged for at the same time and that he's going to be surrendering for uh, at some point next week. And so that's kind of how this has been playing out behind the scenes. And I do want to share with you just some of what he had said last night in announcing that he's no longer going to be holding this. Donald Trump posted, uh, quote, rather than releasing the report on the rigged and stolen Georgia 2020 presidential election on Monday, my lawyers would prefer putting this, I believe, irrefutable and overwhelming evidence of election fraud and irregularity irregularities in formal legal filings. He went on to say, therefore, the news conference is no longer necessary. And of course, I have to uh, highlight again, Phil and Poppy, that these are the same false claims that Donald Trump has been making for years now and what he is being charged for uh, in part in this indictment. And both Georgia's uh, secretary of state and governor, both of whom are Republicans, have repeatedly said uh, that the Georgia election was not stolen. And so I think there's this is the key reason why he's not moving forward this on Monday. Yeah, and it's going to be fascinating to see if his lawyers actually use that information as the former president says they're going to in their filings. Right. I uh, wouldn't hold my breath on that one, Elena Treen, with today's version of As Trump World Turns. Thanks very much for the reporting.
And next, she was the face of a viral liberal Twitter account. Only one thing, she didn't run it. CNN tracking down the real face behind the fake Erica Marsh. Are you Erica Marsh? No, but that's your face. Seems to be. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So a woman in Florida is speaking out for the first time after she became the face of a liberal Twitter account that went viral earlier this year, an account that turned out to be fake. CNN tracked her down, and she says she had nothing to do with it. Our Isabel Rosales joins us live from Atlanta this morning. Good morning, Isabel. What did she say? Good morning to you, Poppy. For so long, she felt like she was just screaming out into the void as she saw this account just take off, saying that her face was stolen. She was not actually saying all of this. But now she is ready to tell her story and set the record straight. Her name is Courtney. Erica Marsh. Erica Marsh. Erica. Erica. Marsh. Erica Marsh quickly rose as a viral left-wing voice on social media. Her incendiary tweets, often ultra-liberal and politically charged, drew millions of views and the ire of Republicans. Tweets like, do you agree that drag story hour should be mandated for elementary school students? And why does it seem like most Republicans are pedophiles? The account had nearly 130,000 followers. Marsh's top tweet viewed more than 27 million times. Twitter, which now goes by X, took down the account a few weeks ago. It was a fake, but the photos were not. Now, CNN exclusively shares the real face that's on the notorious account. Are you Erica Marsh? No, but that's your face. Seems to be. Why are you talking to us? I want to tell the world that that's not me. My name is not Erica Marsh. I'm Courtney. Courtney Ballesteros lives in a rural part of the Tampa Bay area in Florida. She showed CNN her original photos, nearly a decade old. She says they were stolen from her Facebook page. In my grandmother's front yard. By whoever or whatever is behind this account named Erica Marsh. The photos on the account are from when Courtney was still a teenager. She's since gotten married and had children. All right, Courtney, let me have you read um, Erica Marsh's probably most popular tweet. It got over 27 million views. And then tell me what you think about it. Today's Supreme Court decision is a direct attack on black people. No black person will be able to succeed in a merit-based system. And what do you think? I'm speechless. (laughs) Speechless, because while this viral fake account shares Courtney's face, they do not share the same politics. Are you liberal? No, ma'am. No. (laughs) Are you a Republican? Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Can I ask you which way you voted in the last presidential elections? Of course I voted for Trump. You sense the irony here, right? Yes. Some people thought that this was an AI-generated image. Yeah. When I saw that, that that was also made me laugh. I was like, they don't even think I'm real. It was her friends who first alerted her. Hey, like there's this Twitter account. Is it yours? They're posting uh, crazy things. Over months, Marsh only grew more popular. I think there was even a elected representative that interacted with the account. Yeah, Matt Gates. Like with my face. <laughs> so that is shocking. But Courtney only grew more concerned about its message. Twitter has a policy against impersonation. Once the Erica Marsh account was removed, Courtney felt relieved, but not safe. I don't want to be out in public and someone notice my 
picture uh, that was on the account, approached me, approached my family. Who knows what someone would do that didn't agree with what Erica Marsh was saying. Whoever's running this account knows what people like and knows how to get attention. Darren Linville, a professor at Clemson University, studies disinformation and trolling. What is Erica Marsh? Is it a parody? Is it a troll? Is it a disinformation campaign? What is she? Uh, Erica Marsh is a fake online influencer. She isn't a troll in the way that a lot of viewers may think of a troll. Linville believes this was the work of a professional. This is not an amateur, no. It'd be very hard for an amateur to get to well over 100,000 followers in such a, such a short amount of time. And Courtney's pictures plucked on purpose. She looks all American, she looks friendly, but ultimately it's about influence. It's meant to engage with a very specific audience and to get people a little bit angry. Whether the goal of the account was to generate money or sow division, Linvell says the real owner of Erica Marsh is likely still operating on the platform. Is there any way to tell who's responsible for Erica Marsh or where they come from? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? It's just fake. <laughs> you know, it's fake. The whole thing was fake. And the Erica Marsh profile claimed that she worked for the Obama and Biden campaigns, but like everything else on the account, that was all made up. Experts say that this easily could have been the work of a foreign government or group or perhaps even a ploy to make money from all the clicks and attention that the account was getting. But either way, there is a real concern here about these sorts of fake accounts and the influence that they could have leading up to the 2024 presidential election. Bobby, yeah. Phil. No question. An amazing job tracking her down and finding her. What a story. What a story. Thanks, Isabel. Well, new overnight, a drone shot down over Moscow. We're going to have all the new t details that are coming in now. Also, Ron DeSantis, what his debate strategies are, leaked a week before he takes the stage. Next. Those are live pictures of the Statue of Liberty in the base of the Washington Monument. You might ask, why are we showing them? They look beautiful. <laughs> that's true. Uh, however, they're both also a key to a new push by President, former President Donald Trump's attorneys. They're arguing that you should move the trial date, not just for the federal election itself in 2024, but because moving it two and a half plus years away would be necessary, given they're buried in prep work. And if all the documents were actually stacked up, the stack would be eight times taller than the Washington Monument and about 16 times the height of the Statue of Liberty. Show don't tell, as they say <laughs> in journalism. Joining us now, national politics team leader for Bloomberg, Mario Parker, money and politics reporter for The New York Times, Rebecca O'Brien, and former U.S. attorney of the Middle District of Georgia, Michael Moore. Uh, Michael, I, I want to start with um, beyond just the visualization, which, mm -hmm. again, I appreciate. Our great, editors yeah. yell at us to do that more often than right. not. Um, didn't see a lot of stuff related to the 2024 election in right. the ask to move it to 2026. Why not? You know, um, I think they know that that on its face is not going to be enough. I mean, but the truth is the, the request to move to 2026 is almost as ridiculous as the request to set the trial in January of next year. Uh, there, there's no possible way that's going to happen. It's almost a PR move, and I think this is sort of the Trump team response to that. But every defendant in court has a right to have effective representation. The Sixth Amendment guarantees them yes. that. So there's no way that you can look at 11 million documents in a relatively short time, especially if you think about the amount of time it's taken the government to put together the case and their investigation, and then compare that now as the Trump team tries to review it, that it, it would be four or five months. So... Um, I, I think it was just an effort probably to get the judge to split the baby somewhere and uh, look for a, a, a date, which I think, frankly, 
uh, will be either very close, but more likely right after the election. Is it uh, the idea of we have so much work because our client has been indicted so many times? Take have pity on us, a, a, you know, a viable presentation? It, 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 it's not a legal defense. I mean, right. it's, it's sort of a, uh, maybe a little bit of a common sense thing. The, the, the problem is, is they're trying to capitalize, I think, on this idea that he, he's being, being piled upon by case after case. And, and to make a statement now in a public filing that they can't be ready to, to defend either one. As he goes into this, he's still presumed innocent, right? So he's just like any other American, no matter what you think about him, he's still got the constitutional right to be presumed innocent and to prepare each case. So I think they're pushing that narrative too. I, I fear that some of the efforts to compress the schedule plays right into his hands that he's being treated differently. Mm. Uh, and uh, it, it makes it look like the government's efforts are to get all these cases heard right before trial, so every, right before the election, so everybody can know about it. That, that's not how cases are handled. Right. And in and, and a case like this, especially of any complexity, you, you would expect there, there would be at least a year delay, typically more. Uh, and so it would be interesting to compare uh, how long people have sat in jail on January 6th charges, relatively simple cases about trespassing on the Capitol grounds and those kinds of things, yeah. versus how quick they're trying to move this trial. Mario, one thing I think is interesting is sort of the growing chorus of uh, Republicans who aren't, you know, total Trump, Trump cheerleaders like Chris Christie and Bill Barr, who are questioning this Georgia indictment because they're saying, you know, Jack Smith did this, and usually a federal indictment would supersede something on the state level, and it just seems like piling on, right? That I'm paraphrasing here. But you have a good point about Trump canceling his press conference on Monday to try to debunk, you know, and try to, you know, um, refute the Georgia indictment. <laughs> Georgia indictment. I'm sorry, Phil's making fun of me here. Um, that's, not, because, that's not true. Because your point is it shows how seriously Trump's taking it, that he's canceled it, right? Yeah, no, no. There's we've been expecting this Georgia indictment to drop for a while now. Right. Uh, ever since going back to shortly after the 2020 election was even conducted. And this one, while it may be tough for Americans to wrap their hands around their heads around uh, the privileges that a former president may have with handling classified documents, uh, some of the ambiguity in the uh, New York Manhattan case. This is one where you actually heard the former president on the phone saying, hey, me 11,000 plus votes mm -hmm. so I can win the election after it was conducted. You've got the governor of uh, Georgia, Brian Kemp, who is a Republican, right? You've got the secretary of state, all of them saying that the, that the election was held fairly and it was run, run uh, fairly as well. And that the former president is uh, being, you know, delivering falsehoods essentially and saying that uh, it was stolen from him. So this is serious business. And you can see that the Trump attorneys are taking this mm -hmm. one particularly serious. And he's listening to them. For now. For now. For the moment. For this minute. <laughs> um, Rebecca, I, I want to ask you, uh, your colleagues had a big scoop yesterday related to a campaign prep memo uh, from a super PAC for Ron DeSantis. Uh, I've bored our team and Poppy with my 8 million different thoughts about all this of these true. things <laughs> over the course <laughs> of the last several hours. But you keyed on something that I'm most interested in, which is the actual dynamic between the super PAC and the campaign itself. Who's spending the most money? Who seems to be directing things to some degree? And I think there's some tension there, too, between the two, even though they've shared employees back and forth at various points. Fair? Yeah, I think one of the things that 
first struck me about that story, which was great, is um, is the elaborate kind of choreography. There's something kind of it's almost comic. The kind of the way that you have to not coordinate, but um, it is explicitly comic. It, it's it's not even you know, almost, <laughs> and it's explicitly not supposed to be coordinated. Right. And yet, and you see, like if you post it, I mean, I, one thing I liked about the story is that it says it lays out that because they can't coordinate, they have to put, or it's not uncommon to put debate prep material and polling data in a corner of the internet where people might not be able to find it. But then, of course, it comes out. Um, And I think it just raises all these questions, not just for um, Governor DeSantis, but for other candidates as well, um, all of whom have their own uh, dynamics with the, you know, the super PACs, the various kinds of, like, uh, political committees that are aligned with them, um, how those entities coordinate or don't coordinate or kind of um, signal to each other and to the campaigns. It's just, it's fascinating to me. And I I think, you know, in the case of Governor DeSantis, this PAC has, Super PAC has a tremendous amount of power and a lot of money. They've raised $130 million and they're spending very big, um, not only on ads, but they're also kind of acting as a shadow uh, campaign in some ways. They're, They're providing a lot of ground support for his, you know, his efforts around the country. Yeah. We take a minute and listen to what Bill Barr said, because after that great interview Caitlin did with him, I was pretty sure he wouldn't vote for Trump. But now I'm not so sure. Let's listen to what he said on Fox yesterday. I've already explained that if I thought that one of two people is going to end up as the president, then I wouldn't throw my vote away. I would try to make a decision who would do the least damage to the country. But if there were other options, I would also consider. Would you just not vote? president vote on no i think down ticket no if one of two people is going to do it i would have to make that bitter choice but and and if there are other options it's conceivable bill barr could vote for donald trump well i'm not as i said i jump off that bridge when i get to it not a no mario and i'm not like it's interesting who bill barr is going to vote for but really i'm more interested in what you think as you apply that to the rest of sort of republicans in america Yeah, what you're saying is a slow realization, a gradual realization where Republicans maybe about six months ago thought that they had finally exercised Donald Trump right from the party. You had Mitch McConnell shortly after the disappointing 2022 midterm saying that Trump had been his political capital had been diminished. Well, these cases that we just spoke about essentially supercharged uh, Trump's political capital, rallied the party around him. And now you're saying people like Bill Barr. People like Mitch McConnell start to hedge a bit more because, quote, uh, essentially the, the the base, that 30 percent that Trump has this iron tight grip on has been ignited in the face of these legal challenges. And they, they're going with where the winds are. All right. Rebecca, Michael, Mario, thanks, guys. We appreciate it. And in our next hour, we're going to be speaking with presidential candidate Chris Christie ahead of the first Republican primary debate. You're not going to want to miss that. Mortgage rates, they are very expensive if you tried to get one recently. The highest in 21 years, what this means if you're looking to buy a house. New overnight emergency crews have converged on central Moscow, where Russian air defenses shot down a drone near a city center. This happened just about three miles away from the Kremlin. Pretty close. Russia is blaming Ukraine, calling it a terrorist attack. The country's civil aviation authority says... It had to suspend traffic to four major airports because of this. And it's all unfolding. As CNN has learned, the U.S. has committed to approving the transfer of F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine as soon as pilot training on them is complete. The training program was initially expected to start this month. It's not clear exactly 
when it will start or how long it's expected to take. But that's a big change, big change in U.S. policy. Yeah, no question. Also this morning, mortgage rates in the United States have soared to their highest level in more than 20 years. Now, according to the data from Freddie Mac, the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage averaged above 7% over the week ending yesterday. A year ago, just over 5%. CNN's Julia Chatterley is here. Julia, if hypothetically somebody wanted to buy a house because they were moving their family to New York recently. Uh, Anyone we know? What impact would that have on a buyer? It would be a huge problem. You can tell me perhaps better than, uh, than I can tell you in this case. I think the other thing to remember, first and foremost, about this interest rate, it assumes a 20% down payment. It assumes you have an excellent credit score, which we're going to assume um, you do, kind of Phil, hypothetically. Phil then, he has um, an so if you don't have those two things, actually you're probably being offered... Worse. Yes. So that's the first thing to remember. But this is just one component of actually what is combined to be the worst affordability crisis in housing that we've seen for four decades. You have sky-high relative, sky-high mortgage rates. You also have a lack of supply of homes on the market. Then you also have actually near record home prices too. Combine all those things, you've got a triple whammy that's having a pretty devastating effect. Let me just show you, to your point, what mortgage rates have looked like over the last few years. Now, if you were lucky enough to lock in rates in August of 2021, well done. Let's say your mortgage repayments was $1,000 there. Today, your option is paying double that, even for above income, average income families. That's a huge whack. So you understand the problem here. Now, it's great. Let's be clear if you're a homeowner. But if the big American dream is to own your home, perhaps leave that money to your kids one day, um, that's getting further and further away. And it doesn't really change until Federal Reserve starts to bring rates down, these things ease, people start to sell their homes. And that's going to take some time. It's also coming as rent prices remain very wow. high, one of the stickiest so parts of the inflation issues as well. Yeah. yeah, and that's the cash crunch. Remember the guy who ran in here in New York on the rent is too damn high. Too damn high. Yeah, I would well, agree. It's old. Turns out too he was right. Turns Are we allowed to say that this time? Thanks, Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Julia. Appreciate. Have a great weekend. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, this just ends. CNN is learning exclusively where the alleged architect of the fake electors plot was during the January 6th riot. What our K-File team uncovered. Plus. With great reluctance, the court has no choice in this matter but to grant the motion for a mistrial. Oh, oh you go. The mother of the black FedEx driver who was shot while making deliveries in Mississippi, just outraged and devastated after a mistrial is declared. Hearing overnight reaction from that driver ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Scary moments in last night's preseason game between the Eagles and the Browns as two players were carted off the field with neck injuries. Andy Scholes joins us with more. Andy? Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, after last year where we saw those scary injuries to Jamar Hamlin and Tua Tungabailoa on the field, you know, just really hoping that everyone has a safe and healthy season this time around. But the card did have to come out on the field twice in last night's Eagles-Browns game, both for neck injuries. The first happening here, Tyree Cleveland. His head slams into the ground while he was trying to make that catch, so the cart came out and took him off the field. Then later, defensive lineman Moro Jomo, he was chasing down Kellen Mond here, but while making the diving play, his head hits his teammate, causing it to get bent back. Both scary moments, but the good news was the team announced that both players had movement in their extremities afterwards. All right, the NBA, meanwhile, announcing the regular season uh, schedule yesterday. The Brooklyn Nets, uh, borrowing a page from the Tennessee Titans hilarious video from earlier this year, they went to Coney Island and asked tourists to name that logo. 
And, well, watch how it went. Oh, the New York Yankees. Insurance. Buffaloes. Buffaloes, right? Uh, this is the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Bridge, Bridge yeah. in a basketball. Um, Two question mark trying to make love. Tigers, LSU Tigers. The, the exploding field goal. And you know, guys, I never thought this Antonio Spurs logo looked like an exploding field goal, but now I can't now you'll never that. unsee it. Now you'll <laughs> yeah. never unsee it. And if you don't think that I'm trying to work through how we can make this a segment with you, me, and Poppy going forward, we are tell, definitely tell what I was do. doing. And Poppy was getting every single one of them right, uh, and it yeah. was very impressive. Yeah, it was very impressive. Mm -hmm. Andy Schultz, thanks yeah. as always, my friend. All right. CNN this morning continues right now. And good morning, everyone. Let's get started with five things to know for this Friday, August 18th. This just in, new and exclusive CNN reporting that reveals that Trump ally Kenneth Chesbrough, who's the alleged architect of the fake electors plot, followed Alex Jones around the Capitol on January 6th. Videos and photographs reviewed by CNN shows Chesbrough recording Jones as they entered the restricted area of the Capitol grounds, where mobs of then-President Donald Trump's supporters eventually broke in. Hawaii has one of the largest public safety outdoor siren warning systems in the world. So why were they silent during the deadly wildfires? What we're learning this morning as Maui's emergency management administrator steps down. And Hurricane Hillary, now a major Category 4 storm, Southern California and the Southwest bracing for flooding and mudslides. Health officials across the country bracing for three viruses this fall. They're warning COVID, the flu and RSV could all hit at the same time. And start spreading the news, or don't if you're <laughs> Yankees fan like me. The Yankees are the worst that they've been in decades. It's unfortunate, but seen in this morning starts right now. And we're going to start this morning with that major storm we're tracking that's posing a threat to the West Coast. Hurricane Hillary, it intensified overnight into a powerful Category 4 storm as it nears Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. It could also bring really heavy rain and flooding to Baja, California, that peninsula in the southwest of this country by the weekend. Hurricane Hillary expected to weaken as it heads north. But if it hits California, even as a tropical storm, it would be unprecedented. It would be the first one to do so in 84 years. Our meteorologist Derek Van Dam tracking it all. What does it look like it's going to do? Yeah, this will be in a significantly weakened state by the time it impacts the southwestern U.S. That's extremely important as a weather communicator to our television audience that people understand that just because we have a Category 4 storm lurking off the coast of the Baja Peninsula does not mean we'll have Category 4 winds in Southern California. However, the impacts will be significant mainly because we're going to catch a, a large population density off, uh, off guard because this hasn't happened since 1939, the last time a tropical storm made landfall in Southern California. So the official forecast track from the National Hurricane Center shows a landfall in tropical storm. Uh, does it move inland? Does it stay over open water? That's to be determined. One thing's for sure, it's going to be interacting with significantly cooler ocean waters, and that will help weaken the storm as it approaches the southwestern U.S. If the track takes it offshore, so no land interaction with the Baja Peninsula, more of a coastal impact. So look out for large waves, coastal erosion, and urban flooding. 
possibility between Los Angeles and specifically into San Diego. But if this storm takes a more easterly track, this brings the greatest impacts inland to Southern California, parts of Western Arizona and Southern Nevada. This is for Sunday into Monday. We'll look out for those wind impacts, but the flash flood threat, this is what I'm very concerned about. A high risk, very rare from the Weather Prediction Center, and that includes Palm Springs for excessive flash flooding. Get this, we could get one to two years worth of rain in a matter of a day or two. This is how serious this storm will be. It is going to produce significant rainfall, and we're looking out for millions under flood watches as we speak, including, look at this, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and just west of Phoenix. So a very, very difficult next 36 to 48 hours across the southwest. Bobby? Right. Please keep us posted. Derek yeah. Van Dam, thank you. we Will do. This morning, there's outrage. Uh, there's a lot of fallout and many questions over why there wasn't warning for the catastrophic wildfires in Hawaii. We know at least 111 people are confirmed dead. A new overnight Maui's, manage Maui's emergency management chief has resigned in the wake of America's deadliest wildfire in over a century. He was already facing serious criticism for not activating the island's warning sirens as the inferno closed in on Lahaina. Just one day before his resignation, he defended that decision to not sound the alarms. And also developing overnight, Hawaii's Water Management Agency is coming under scrutiny. We're now learning a state official may have delayed giving permission to use extra water to fight the fire as the disaster unfolded. And also this morning, the ATF has announced it is sending a team of investigators to find out where and how the wildfire started. Maui's mayor tells CNN nearly half of the disaster area has been searched. Over 40 cadaver dogs are scouring the scorched ruins. We want to bring in Randy Kay. Randy, you have been digging into the many questions about why here, what happened, but in particular, why the warning sirens did not sound. What are you finding? Yeah, absolutely, Phil. We wanted to know what happened, and we think that the people of Hawaii certainly deserve answers. And as we were digging into this, we found a lot of changing stories, a lot of explanations that continued to change, and quite frankly, a lot of excuses. And none of it really added up, all of this, as the death toll continues to rise. So many of us residents felt like we had absolutely no warning. Hawaii has one of the largest public safety outdoor siren warning systems in the world. Sirens that were silent as wildfires raged. Question is, why? First, it was this. It would not have saved those people on the, on the mountainside. Do you regret not sounding the sirens? I, I do not. The sirens, as I had mentioned earlier, is used primarily for tsunamis. That's what the head of Maui's emergency management agency said Wednesday before suddenly resigning a day later. But even before that press conference ended, his reason had changed. This time, suggesting the sirens weren't used because people wouldn't have been able to hear the warning. It's an outdoor siren. So a lot of people who are indoors, air conditioning on, whatever the case may be, they're not gonna hear the siren. Plus, were, the winds were very gusty and everything. The, the, uh, I heard it was very loud. And so they wouldn't have heard the sirens. Same story with Hawaii's governor. First this. Sirens were typically used for tsunamis or hurricanes. To my knowledge, at least I never experienced them uh, in use for fires. Then minutes later, another explanation. This time, the governor suggested at least some of the sirens were broken. The sirens were essentially uh, immobilized, we believe, we believe, by the extreme heat that came through. Some were broken and we're investigating that. 
Yet that doesn't all track with the county's own webpage, MauiSirens.com, which clearly states how the siren system is capable of alerting residents to multiple disasters, including wildfires. Emergency alert. And we also found this explainer about the sirens' uses on Hawaii's Emergency Management Agency's webpage. We also use sirens for hurricanes, brush fires, flooding, lava, hazmat conditions, uh, or even a terrorist event. This map, also from the county's page, shows where the warning sirens are located. According to the state, there are about 400 sirens statewide, including 80 on Maui. And in the historic town of Lahaina, where more than 100 people were killed in the flames, there are five sirens. Five sirens that were not used to warn those in grave danger. Instead, officials say they chose to send alerts by text message to cell phones, as well as alerts on landlines and through TV and radio. It is our practice to use the most effective means of conveying an emergency message to the public during a wildlife, wild, wildland fire. While that may have worked in some cases, the wildfire moved so swiftly it knocked out power and cell service. So how were residents supposed to receive those warnings? There's no warning at all. There's not a, a siren, not a phone alert, not a nothing, not a call. And Hawaii has had problems in the past with its alert system. In fact, in 2018, a cell phone alert mistakenly alerted the residents there of an incoming missile attack. Obviously, that was a false alarm. And also back in 1960, this has been going on for quite some time, uh, after a tsunami hit the area of Hilo, Hawaii, residents didn't even know what the siren alarm meant. They didn't know what to do. So instead of going up into the mountainside for safety, they ran toward the ocean and 61 people died. Poppy, Phil? Wow. Randy Kay, great reporting. Thanks so much. We also have new exclusive CNN reporting this morning about pro-Trump lawyer Kenneth Chesbro and his whereabouts, where he was at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th during the insurrection. He was the alleged architect behind the plan to submit a fraudulent slate of electors after Trump lost the 2020 race. He was among 19 people, including Trump, indicted this week on racketeering and other charges in Georgia's election subversion case. Our senior crime and justice correspondent, from Porcupine has this exclusive reporting. Where was he? Well, according to a CNN investigation, what we found is that he was outside the doors of the Capitol on January 6th, surrounded by the mob of protesters, but also significantly following around a leading voice of the Stop the Steal movement and conspiracy theorist, Alex Jones. And now this morning, the big question, what was he doing there? He is one of the alleged co-conspirators in two cases against Donald Trump for 2020 election interference. Now for the first time, CNN has identified Kenneth Chesbro outside the Capitol on January 6th, shortly before a mob stormed the east side of the building. He followed right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones for about an hour. Chesbro is the alleged architect of a plot to use fake electors to stop the certification of Joe Biden's win. This week, he was indicted, along with Trump and 17 others in Georgia. He's also been identified as an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal case against the former president. 
CNN projects Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States. In the days after the November 2020 election, Chesbrough wrote a memo to a lawyer for Donald Trump. It's among the earliest known documents outlining the legal strategy Trump would allegedly try to use. His memo focuses on January 6th as the hard deadline with ultimate significance to determine the validity of electoral votes. Emails obtained by the January 6th committee show Chesbrough later suggesting to the Trump campaign that the fear of, quote, wild chaos on that day could provoke the Supreme Court to take action. Go to the White House! At the same time, Alex Jones was helping pay for and plan the January 6th rally, urging his massive audience to gather in Washington, D.C. The night before Trump's rally, Jones would warn of a coming battle. This will be their Waterloo. This will be their destruction. We fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. When the January 6th committee asked if Chesbrough was in Washington the first week of January, Chesbrough pleaded the fifth. But there is no question, he was there. CNN has analyzed publicly available photos and videos from that day which show his movements. In the hours before the insurrection, he was with Alex Jones and his entourage a short distance from the Capitol. Chesbro is here wearing a red Trump 2020 hat. As lawmakers prepare to certify the results of the election inside the building, Chesbro follows Alex Jones and a crowd of protesters as they walk towards the Capitol. Chesbro has his phone out, seemingly recording Jones's every move. Let's march around to the other side. As Jones was leading a crowd to the east side of the Capitol, the west side was breached and rioters poured in. At one point, while Chesper was on Capitol grounds, he appears to show something on his phone to a member of Jones's security team. Then Jones and Chesper climbed the Capitol steps. There is no indication Chesbro entered the Capitol building or engaged in violence. But shortly after Chesbro and Jones left the steps on the east side, the Capitol was breached again as the mob poured into the doors. In all, more than 2,000 rioters would enter the building, vandalizing and looting, attempting to prevent a joint session of Congress from counting the Electoral College votes. The House committee investigating January 6 would eventually call it the final step in Donald Trump's plan to try and overturn the election, a plan that started in earnest with Kenneth Chesbrough. And we're hearing from Kenneth Chesbrough's attorney who told us last night, he spoke to uh, my colleague Andrew Kaczynski and Amstek, who've been doing all the reporting on this, saying that they're going to allow the legal process to play out and that they're declining to issue any public comment at this time. And that sort of has been Chesborough's thing, right? He hasn't really wanted to talk about it when he was before the January 6th committee. Uh, he pleaded the fifth. He claimed attorney-client privilege for most of the interview. Uh, so he is one of the people who is going to have to surrender in Georgia next week by Friday. Yeah, that's great reporting by K-File team. Shimon, stay with us as well. I want to bring in Ali Honig to talk about the legal implications here. When you watch that piece, when you know Kenneth Chesbrough's role uh, both in the federal and state cases, whether unindicted or indicted, uh, what's your take on what you just saw? Well, this is a big problem for Kenneth Chesbrough, and here's why. His defense, and I think a defense we're going to hear from a lot of the players here, is this was just lawyering. You can't criminalize lawyering because 
the main thing up until now that we knew that Kenneth Chesbrough was doing was writing these memos suggesting ways they could try to disrupt the electoral count. But he's not just some lawyer sitting in an ivory tower thinking of, you know, novel legal theories. Now we see he's literally at ground level. And I think that raises real questions about his participation. The other important thing to know about Kenneth Chesbrough, Shimon and I were discussing, this guy is the underrated player here. Everyone's very focused on the other lawyers, Rudy Giuliani, on John Eastman, on Sidney Powell. If you read the indictment, he's the driving force. He's the one who's really coordinating with not just the top players, but the local players too. Especially on the fake electors, right? Yeah. That's what the- The Wisconsin memo. The Wisconsin yeah. memo, but also he's the driving force behind this idea that you can bring in these fake electors. The whole thing what's really interesting with him is that he's about sort of creating chaos. Let delay, delay, He delay. wrote as much. Right, and it's sort of, let's just create this chaos, this uncertainty, yeah. and hopefully we can delay, 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 and somehow, the former president could get more votes and somehow this can all work in his favor. That's what it's so much of this is about. But it's also significant because he won't admit that he had conversations with Donald Trump. They asked him in the committee uh, hearing when he was questioned, did you meet with Donald Trump? What were the discussions? Did you have any meetings with him? And he said, I'll take in the fifth attorney client privilege. So clearly they know a lot of information. And it's very clear the special counsel has a lot of information about him. But as Ellie said, no one really knew anything about him. And now that his name has surfaced out there and you start digging in, you really learn just how much he was behind all of this. Can I just add one thing to that? We, we hear a lot about the fake elector scheme, but if you look at both indictments, Fulton County and DOJ, their allegation is not that the intent here was to trick people. Everybody knew Joe Biden. You could, you could go to CNN. I mean, everybody knew Joe Biden won. They weren't trying to say Donald Trump actually won. They were trying to create chaos. They figured if we can get someone to sign on to this somehow or just cause delay or cause confusion, that'll give us the opening we need. That's actually the charging theory in these indictments. But does, yeah. I want to just ask quickly a question. Does this in any way help the former president? Can he say, well, look, this lawyer was sort of the one telling me, you know, here, this was allowed and I can do this. You know, are they going to try to use this as kind of a defense? Oh, 100%. It's called the advice of counsel, meaning my lawyers told me this was fine. But the problem is they're all charged as co-conspirators, meaning they were all in on the crime together. Yeah. All right. Uh, Shimon, great reporting. Uh, You and the K-File team. Ellie, uh, stay with us. I think coming back. Uh, So we're just five days away from the first Republican presidential debate. Donald Trump, we don't think he's going to be on stage, but Chris Christie will. He's live with us next. And Trump suddenly canceling a news conference where he claimed he was going to present, quote, new evidence of fraud in Georgia's 2020 presidential election. New reporting behind that change of plans and total lack of evidence. Next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. In somewhat of a rare move from President Trump, he is canceling plans for his Monday night news conference where he was promising to introduce evidence of fraud in Georgia's 2020 presidential election, even though no fraud has ever been substantiated there, according to Republicans leading the state. As all this unfolds, Trump's legal team is fine-tuning their plans for his surrender. The deadline to turn himself in is a week from today. Arlana Treen joins us live with more of this reporting. It is an about-face in terms of listening to people who tell him, do not talk about this for now. That's true. Uh, And it is a rare move from the former president. But listen, this press conference that he had announced he was holding 
caught a lot of people in Trump's inner circle off guard. Like you just said, Poppy, uh, his team and his lawyers in Georgia have been very focused on the negotiations that are uh, ongoing right now with the district attorney's office in Fulton County. Um, and so when they saw this post from Donald Trump, I think a lot of people were surprised. And, um, you know, they're skeptical of what he could say in that Monday press conference. And understandably so. A lot of, um, you know, the false claims that he has been peddling for the past several years now are exactly what he's being charged for in Georgia. And so um, our reporting, and including uh, our colleague Caitlin Collins, uh, we've learned that his advisors had been encouraging him not to do this. And of course, Donald Trump announced last night on social media that he no longer is going to be hosting this press conference on Monday. Now, um, he also said that he thinks that he wants to still put out some of this report uh, in legal filings. It's yet to be seen whether or not that will actually happen. Uh, and one thing I want to point to as well is this report that he was floating about wanting to present on Monday was really um, kind of a pet project, I was told, of Liz Harrington, one of Donald Trump's aides. And she's one of the people who has been one of the former president's fiercest allies and also has consistently peddled the false claims about the 2020 election being stolen uh, as well. And so that kind of gives you a sense of what he was planning on saying and now is no longer going to be doing. All right, Elena Treen, thanks for the reporting. Nellie Honig is back with us. Look, this is the question beyond the, hey, he's listening to his lawyers. Right. That's different. Um, <laughs> the idea of suggesting his lawyers are definitely going to be using this in some or fi many filings as part. What's how plausible is that? <laughs> Very low plausibility on that one. Look, if he had had this conference, it would have been disastrous because there, he just wouldn't have had anything. He would have been really perpetrating more fraud, not that he would be charged for it. But you would say, look, there is yet more evidence that there is nothing to this. Now, when it comes time for trial, if there was evidence of fraud, you can bet it will be part of his defense because they'll say, well, I was told there was fraud and there actually was. But it just doesn't exist. So it's not going to make its way into the court case. There's no way that the U.S. Department of Justice missed it. The FBI missed it. CIS missed it. All these different agencies. So the problem is he's trying to prop up this fiction. And it was a wise move, wise counsel by his lawyer, lawyers mm -hmm. to not do this conference. It would have been a mess. Um, Jack Smith, the special counsel, wants Trump to go to trial on the election subversion case in like four months yeah. in January. Trump's team now says, no, we want three years. We want April 2026. Both of them kind of seem unreasonable. Am I right? Both sides are way off base here. I mean, the 2026 request is not a serious one. I think that's clearly a negotiation. It's like how big position. tier college football teams schedule their opponents like five years. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like who's even thinking about 2026? Um, that said, I think it's important to note the January 2024 date is not only unrealistic, but raises legitimate constitutional right. concerns. I fully For the defendant. For, yes, for everybody, yes. for the entire yes. process. I fully understand the desire, the widespread desire in the country, in DOJ, in the courts to get this case tried quickly. But if you try... Maybe because of the election. Because the election... But they shouldn't be thinking about that. Nobody should be thinking about this. But just let's talk nuts and bolts. This is four months away. Donald Trump's team has received 11 million documents. They can't physically go through those in four months. And by the way, the average run-of-the-mill fraud case in the federal system takes two years to get to court. If you force Donald Trump to trial in four months, you're going to have a real constitutional problem. That's so interesting, which could jeopardize the whole thing. Could, could jeopardize a verdict. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks guys. All right. Good to have you. Michael Burry, the investor, the big short made famous. Well, he made millions betting against the housing market in 2008 before it all collapsed. What's behind his new bet on the stock market crashing? Ben McKenzie. 
has been setting up on all of this. He knows a thing or two about it. He's with us in studio next. Well, welcome back on this Friday morning. We're going to take a look at the pre-market numbers. You see everything's down just a little bit. Dow futures down about 89 points. NASDAQ futures uh, down a little under 1%. S&P 500 down as well, a little bit, not terrible. They all fell about 1% on Thursday, a third straight day of losses over fears of another Fed rate hike. And now Michael Burry, the investor played by Christian Bale in the big short, appears to have placed a new bet, or at least at some point placed a new bet in the second quarter. And it's a big one. Remember, Burry was one of the first traders on Wall Street to discover America's massive housing market bubble in 2008. He bet against it. He made hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, he appears to have made another big bet, this time betting against the stock market. Joining us now, actor, writer, director, Ben McKenzie. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. I was just telling you that we were talking about this yesterday because I'm obsessed with the Michael Burry story, <laughs> yeah. mostly because I think there's a lot of nuance and context to the filing itself. Yes. And I'm going to try not to wander down the granular <laughs> rabbit hole <laughs> that most people probably don't want to watch. But right. the idea of this bet, he's definitely betting on a financial collapse. It's a billion plus dollars. Right. Not true. Uh, it's a notional value. So it could be worth $1.6 billion, but what he actually bet is far less. We don't know exactly. Because you don't have to disclose You don't have to disclose that in the 13F. So it's, pro it's $10 million at least, could be tens of millions. Um, Burry's fund is only $100 million. So, you know, we're not, we're, it's a big percentage of his fund. Um, but we don't really know what goes into that. Um, it could just be a hedge. Um, what's interesting to me is that other big players, Warren Buffett in particular, yeah. Uh, Warren has been selling a lot of stock these, these last six months, um, hoarding cash. If there were to be a downturn in the markets, you would want to have cash because then you would come in and scoop up uh, stocks on the cheap. So there are some big players who are considering that the market's overvalued. And historically speaking, compared to historical averages, it is overvalued. I think that's a great point about Buffett. He also waits to make big purchases until they're priced what he thinks is adequate. So you don't just watch him selling, you watch what he's not doing, which Absolutely. is buying. Absolutely. He's the Oracle of Omaha for a reason. Um, this is just, in a sense, if you could explain it to people, it could just be insurance too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he got, a lot of his positions are long. Um, so he, he, he bets on certain companies that he thinks are undervalued. Um, what does it and, mean when you're long on something? Well, you just, you, you, you buy it, you hold it. Um, he, uh, he could just be hedging. He could just, you know, have some insurance. Basically, he's going to win either way, right? If the market goes down, he's going to profit from his put options. And if the market goes up, he's going to profit from his long positions. So it's hard to say. And also, you know, unfortunately, the 13F is already a little outdated because that's only through the second quarter. That's a regulatory filing. Yeah, yes. sorry, regulatory <laughs> SEC filing. I know, this is all so, so technical. Um, but it is interesting to watch, you know, the markets obviously went down in early 2022, they've come back up, although not to their full heights of 2021. Um, and the Fed, is it done raising interest rates? We don't know yet. So one of the interesting things is if you look at kind of the broader macro numbers for the U.S. economy, I think it, it has all predictions have proven to be wrong. But I think some of the, the smartest economists, whether you're talking about GDP, whether you're talking about jobs, whether you're talking about um, just about everything to some degree, even the trajectory, downward trajectory of inflation, mm -hmm. given the Fed's efforts. Uh, you listen to Janet Yellen. This is what she said this week. Today, overall inflation and the unemployment rate 
both sit below 4%, and our economy continues to expand. And workers are better off than they were last year. Real average hourly earnings have grown over the past year. That means wage gains are outpacing inflation. So it's interesting to contrast that with what Warren Buffett's doing or kind of the assumption over the course of the last 18 months that at some point there's going to be a downturn. At some point, there's got to be an effect that hits the broader macro economy. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, if you zoomed out, there's a lot of uh, factual evidence to support that claim. Um, I mean, you can look at what's happening in China, for example. The Chinese economy is slowing down at a pretty alarming rate. And obviously, at this point, all these economies are interconnected, and our economy is as connected to China as any other. Um, It'll be interesting to see. At some point, the bill does come due, um, and I don't think we're out of the woods yet. And you bring up China. There's also questions about how reliable those numbers even are. Is it worse with China actually than on paper? They even stopped reporting their youth unemployment numbers recently, which is a little concerning. Finally, what keeps you up at night on the economy that we're not talking about, that you don't see on the front of the Wall Street Journal in the morning that you think people should be talking about? Well, I'm just I'm worried about the, the, you know, the, the the rate. Uh, kick in really has a 12 to 18 month time lag. And so we're only at that 18 month mark now from when the Fed started raising interest rates about 18 months ago. So uh, I'm just worried if there's a lot of debt on the books. Uh, we know about commercial debt here in Manhattan is obviously pretty extensive. Um, so that, buildings. yeah, a lot of empty buildings. New York City announced that you know, they could convert some empty office buildings into housing, which is great. But um, there's a bill to come do there as well. Yeah, there always is. Yeah. You know, if you're reading the Financial Times this morning and on the front page, you see crypto took an 8% hit yesterday and you want to know about that, yeah. he's got a book. That's it's right. a great book, by the way. Ben, congrats on it. Thanks, congrats. Thanks for coming in, man. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Okay, there's a debate next week, five days away from the first Republican presidential debate. We're getting a sense, some particulars about one candidate's strategy. And what will Chris Christie do? He joins us next. Well, with just days until the first Republican debate, Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign is having to explain a strategy memo, a lengthy strategy memo, and documents from his super PAC. Now, sources tell CNN the memo has stirred confusion and anger from fundraisers and donors. It was first reported by the New York Times, the super PAC, urging DeSantis at the debate to, quote, hammer Vivek Ramaswamy and defend Donald Trump in response to a Chris Christie attack. So this memo also has... Quote, a specific suggestion for an attack line accusing Mr. Christie of appealing mainly to Democrats. Quote, Trump is in here, so let's just leave him alone. He's too weak to defend himself here. I don't think we want to join forces with someone who, on this stage, on this stage who's auditioning for a show on MSNBC. So the DeSantis campaign responds to this whole thing and says this was not a campaign memo. We are not aware of it. We weren't aware of it prior to the article. With us now is Chris Christie, not in an audition for a show on MSNBC. We appreciate you being here, Governor. Would you no. like, you're in Miami, we'll get to why in a moment. Would you like to respond to this from DeSantis's pack? Well, well, first off, I'd like to respond to what the campaign said. Um, it's not a campaign memo. There is no DeSantis campaign. The entire DeSantis campaign is being run by the Never Back Down Super PAC. Uh, They've gotten all the people at the campaign fired that they didn't like. um, And now they're writing strategy memos and putting them on the Internet where everybody can see them. 
Um, look, this just shows you it's not easy to run for president, everybody. And, and if you can't run for president in a way that doesn't create embarrassing process stories, you know, multiple times a week, you certainly can't uh, run the White House and run the federal government or be trusted to sit across from President Xi or Vladimir Putin mm -hmm. or Kim Jong-un. Um, and so, you know, I think it's it, it's indication of something much, much bigger in terms of problems with Governor DeSantis. So, um, but, you know, I'll show up Wednesday night. We'll see how it goes. All right. So let's talk about how it's going to go. You've called Trump a coward for probably not going. Maybe he's going to come. We'll see. What are you going to do on the debate stage if he's not there? Are, are you are you going to say that to Ron DeSantis? Are your attacks going to be against people like Tim Scott and others and DeSantis who have basically stood by Trump through all these indictments? Poppy, I've got a very simple debate strategy. I'll listen to the questions, answer them directly and honestly. And if someone up there says something that I believe is dishonest, to call them out on it. That's it. I don't have any more complicated strategy than that. I don't, and I don't think you need one. I think what the American people want to see is, what's your plan for the future? Are you strong enough to be able to implement them? And are you, you know, willing to put yourself in front of them and answer whatever questions come from two, I think, very good, credible interviewers, mm -hmm. uh, Brett Baer and Martha McCallum. Uh, and I and I look forward to doing that. And I think all the people who are going through all these strategy memo stuff and, and coming up with canned lines and all the rest of it. I've watched that canned line thing. It doesn't work all that well. Yeah, you pointed we that out in a, Marco a Rubio probably debate, recalls that. if I recall correctly. I think I was covering your campaign at the time. To that point, though, you, there's, you're not looking around and saying, that's my biggest problem in New Hampshire. That individual is the biggest hurdle I have to become the clear kind of uh, contrast to Donald Trump here. You're not thinking through any of that. You're just going in and responding. That's, that's right, Phil. And, and by the way, my biggest problem and what I'm focused on is the biggest problem for the Republican Party um, for defeating Joe Biden, and that's Donald J. Trump. And, you know, the, you know, by the time we get to that stage Wednesday night, guys, he is more likely than not going to be out on bail in four different jurisdictions. I want everybody to think about that. Out on bail. I mean, the first question maybe should be from, from Brett Baer. Uh, Donald Trump, can you explain to us what the restrictions that were placed on you by all four different courts are um, as a condition of your release from custody? I mean, imagine that we have a front runner who has to answer those type of questions. I'm focused on that because I'm not focused on any one particular person except for the person who's ahead of me. And in New Hampshire, now that I've passed Donald Trump, or I've passed rather Ron DeSantis, my next job is to pass Donald Trump in the polls there. So were you surprised? I, I, that's what I am focused on, Phil. Right. Is were Donald you, Trump. Were you surprised given you, you know the former president and his penchant for either taking advice or not taking advice, that he canceled that Monday press conference he'd set up because of his lawyers? No, I'm not surprised by it because what he now knows is he's facing jail time. And he can't make his situation much worse and expect his lawyers to be able to do anything to help him. What he should have done, Phil, is listen to his lawyers back in the White House between November of 2020 and January 20th of 2021, when they told him, if you continue with this election interference activity, you are going to spend the rest of your life dealing with the criminal justice system. 
Bill Barr said that yesterday, that that's what he was told, not only by Bill Barr, his attorney general and other members of the Justice Department, but he was told that by his White House counsel as well, Pat Cipollone. He should have listened to those lawyers and maybe he wouldn't be under indictment in four jurisdictions today and he wouldn't be putting the country through this. He's not doing this for us. He is doing this because he can't help himself. And I think the first smart decision he's made in this regard in a long time was canceling that ridiculous press conference for Monday where all of a sudden he was going to unveil evidence to us that he's apparently been hiding from the American people for nearly three years. I don't think so. I think it would have just been another, you know, junior show of The Apprentice uh, that we would have been watching on television. Responding to the DeSantis campaign attack on you as auditioning for an MSNBC show, there's some interesting polling, though. I know you've seen it. Uh, Quinnipiac says... Um, 32 percent of Democrats have a favorable view of you versus 17 percent of Republicans. And you're the most favored Republican in another poll among Democratic voters. That's great for a general. But is it out of step with where the Republican primary electorate is? Look, Poppy, I, I had no question about the fact that when you want to tell the truth about Donald Trump, that in the beginning, there are going to be some people who are going to react unfavorably to that. Um, and I get that. Mm -hmm. um, but over time, what people are going to understand is I'm the only one who's telling the truth about Donald Trump. And what that shows you is, and they didn't break out the numbers among independents, which are even better for me uh, than the, the numbers you showed. Mm -hmm. And that's what a Republican's going to have to do mm -hmm. in order to win the presidency in November. Let me say this, Poppy, I'm about beating Joe Biden. I don't want Joe Biden and Kamala Harris back in office. I think they've been a disaster. And so we but we got to have someone who can beat him. And Donald Trump cannot beat him. I'm the person, by the way, when I ran for reelection in New Jersey, I won with 61 percent of the vote in one of the bluest states in America and did so by winning 51 percent of the Hispanic vote, 29 percent of the African-American vote and over 70 percent of the independent vote. And that's the kind of formula you're going to need for the Republican Party to go back to winning a majority of the of the popular vote and the electoral vote in November of 2024. And that's what those numbers tell me. You know, you make a good point, though, in the sense of or what I'm interested in exploring here. You mentioned B Bill Barr earlier and just how sharply he's turned against the former president because of what's transpired. And you mentioned that it was going to be hard early in a Republican primary, given how people view Trump with Republicans. Bill Barr, even yesterday, saying would not commit to not voting for the former president again. I want you to listen to this. I've already explained that if I thought that one of two people is going to end up as the president, then I wouldn't throw my vote away. I would try to make a decision who would do the least damage to the country. But if there were other options, I would also consider. Would you them. just not vote for president? Vote on no, I think down if, ticket? No, if one of two people is going to do it, I would have to make that bitter choice. But and, and if there are other options. But it's conceivable or, Bill Barr could vote for Donald Trump. Well, I'm not, as I said, I jump off that bridge when I get to it. Beyond the fact that other than you, I'm not sure anybody else uh, that high level of a Republican official has been so visceral in their criticism uh, and colorful to some degree of the former president. Isn't that the problem that you have Republicans who say explicitly he's terrible for the country? He should never be president again. And then they get asked, will you vote for him again and won't commit one way or another? If you can't kind of break through that, that's a problem for candidates like yourself, isn't it? 
I don't think so, Phil, because listen, I mean, I think Bill Barr made it very clear he's not supporting Donald Trump in the Republican primary for president. But he's one and, of those that should be the, the easiest way, to get to say explicitly. Like, you have to get people to say, I'm not going to vote for him, period, in order to shift the primary electorate to some degree. No, no, Phil. Step one is to get them to vote for you in the primary. That's step one. And and Bill Barr just made it very clear that he's not voting for Donald Trump in the primary. And then he expects someone else to be the nominee. Um, and he's right, because I'm going to be the nominee. And if I if I had a guess, I bet you Bill Barr's going to vote for me. Um, but he'll have to answer that question himself at some point when he goes into a voting booth. But in the end, um, what I'd say to you is that job one is to get Republicans to come to the same conclusion Bill Barr has come to, which is Donald Trump is bad for the party because he can't beat Joe Biden. And he's bad for the country because of the things that he has done both while he was president and most particularly in the post-presidency period. And so, you know, I'm not worried about the general election at the moment and what people I can persuade to vote for me then. I'm going to get them to vote for me now, Phil. So we never have to confront that bridge that uh, Bill Barr said he was prepared to jump off. Um, I'm going to give him a break. We're not going to have that bridge. I'll be the candidate for president. And then he won't have to worry about jumping off any bridge. Too bright a legal mind to have him commit suicide. Wow. Um, I want to ask you about the economy because people are not happy with this, with Bidenomics, even though there's some evidence it is working. You've been critical of it. Yesterday, Trump said he wouldn't uh, reappoint Jerome Powell to head the, the Fed. He's not happy with him. But you have said you'd consider it. Do you still have that position? Would you keep Jerome Powell in a Christie administration? Has he done a good job? Yeah, I think if Donald Trump were elected president, Jerome Powell would probably jump off the same bridge Bill Barr did, talked about. Uh, look, um, anybody who doesn't do exactly what Donald Trump says, exactly when he says it, goes from being brilliant, which is what he called Jerome Powell when he appointed him, to now being someone he wouldn't reappoint. Well, I, what do you think? What he says he about brilliant? personnel. Is he well, brilliant? I, I, does he look, stay? Look, um, I, I don't know if he... I don't know if he's brilliant or not, but I will tell you this, he's starting to bring inflation down, which is the job of the Fed. Mm -hmm. and, and all of us knew that when Joe Biden went crazy with his spending, <clears throat> even Larry Summers said that it was gonna create big inflation, and it did. And it left the Fed with no choice but to raise interest rates in order to bring that inflation back under control. Because inflation is the hidden tax that kills every family in this country when they go to the gas station, to the supermarket, um, to pay for their educational costs, to pay for clothing for their kids. That's the pain Americans are still feeling now. And Poppy, you know, mm -hmm. we've seen gas prices go up 30 cents in the last 10 days a gallon um, while people are trying to get in their last bit of maybe a little bit of a vacation uh, before school starts. Um, this is a tax that really hurts those folks and may make it unaffordable. That's binomics. Um, and, you know, 7% mortgage interest rates, where the mortgages are now $1,300 a month more than they were when a month than when Joe Biden became president. If that's Bidenomics, he can keep it. Um, and so I think Jerome Powell has done exactly what he needed to do um, in terms of trying to bring inflation back under control, which is hurting the American people. Mm -hmm. um, and it wouldn't be happening at all if it hadn't been for Joe Biden's crazy, reckless spending, which drove inflation to double digits for the first time since his favorite president, Jimmy Carter. Right. There's a lot of spending in the Trump administration, too, COVID spending especially. I hear you. You sound like you're ready to debate, and we hear you have to go. So we're going to let you go, Governor. Come back soon. Thanks, Governor. We...
We will. Thank you very much, guys. It's great to be on with you. I appreciate you having me. Of course. Enjoy Miami. Well, health officials across the country are bracing for another triple threat of viruses this fall. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta will fill us in on how to be prepared. Also, emotions running very high inside a Mississippi courtroom after a judge declares a mistrial in the case of two white men accused of shooting at a black FedEx driver. With great reluctance, the court has no choice in this matter but to grant the motion for a mistrial. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Health officials across the country are bracing for another triple threat of viruses this fall. They're warning three respiratory viruses, COVID, the flu, and RSV, could all hit at the same time. Stop me if you've heard this before. Already, we're seeing an uptick in COVID cases. CNN chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. Sanjay, let's start with COVID-19. It seems like everyone knows someone who has it right now. Where do we stand on this? Well, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's, a, there's good news and there's bad news here overall. Um, first of all, there's not a lot of testing going on, as you probably know. So it's hard to get a sense of the real numbers, uh, the amount of transmission out there. But they do these wastewater samples. And when they look at wastewater, we know that there's a lot of COVID that's out there. So what we really look at is hospital admissions, trying to figure out if that's a good sort of measure of what's going on. Let me show you the country as a whole. Um, there's patches of the country. Uh, red and orange are going to be places where you see more significant increase. There are a few places where the number is actually going down. And yellow is sort of stable. So that gives you a snapshot of how things look now. It's August. As the weather gets cooler and drier, we know that these viruses tend to spread more. But let me give you the, the sort of trajectory uh, over the last couple of years of how things have looked. Uh, we know, you know, if you look at that very big surge in the middle there, that was Omicron. Right before that, uh, in September of, of 21, that was Delta. Far right of the screen is where we are now. The numbers are going up, but August of this year right now is about a quarter of what August of last year was. So, you know, the answer, I guess, is we're going to see. We know the numbers will continue to go up, but luckily they're starting at a much lower level than in years past. We talked to you almost, we did talk to you almost every day during the pandemic. Can, can you remind people of their latest guidance? What, like, if someone tests for any of these three positive, what, what do they do? Stay home again? Yeah, I mean, this is probably the question I get more than anything else. First of all, if, if you're sick, you should stay home. Right. That was guidance that existed long before this pandemic. Um, so that, that's important to keep in mind. So with, with COVID specifically, if you test, then isolation is zero to five days. So really five days after a positive test, that's how long you have to isolate. Now, one quick caveat there, I think we can put this up, if you will. One quick caveat is that if you have symptoms and then you test like a couple days into your symptoms, your isolation actually begins on the first day of your symptoms. Okay, that makes okay. sense? So just, just to keep that in mind, you don't need to test to end isolation. Um, but if you have two negative tests, that also means there's no mask that's recommended up until day 10. It's a little complicated, but really the first five days, that's when you're most infectious. That's when you should stay home. You don't need to test to get out of that isolation at this point. Okay. So you can see in the numbers that, that this year is different, but it's also different because we have protection from all three of the viruses, I, I believe. What can we expect vaccinations to look like this fall? 
Look, I put this together to try and make this as simple as possible. So flu, COVID, RSV, really dependent on age. If you're under the age of 60, um, before Halloween, you should get your flu shot. Late September for COVID, that's when that new booster is expected to come out. It is not an exact match for what is currently circulating, dominantly circulating in the country, but it's still good protection, especially for people who are vulnerable. Um, you don't need to worry about RSV if you're under the age of 60. Same guidance for those over the age of 60. Talk to your doctor uh, specifically about RSV if you're at high risk for that particular vaccine. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you, friend. You got it. Thank you. Now to this story. A mistrial has been declared in the case of a white father and son charged with the attempted murder of a black FedEx driver in Mississippi. Gregory and Brandon Case are accused of chasing and shooting to Montario Gibson, who was delivering packages to a Brookhaven home last year. Here's a courtroom reaction when the judge ruled this is a mistrial. With great reluctance, the court has no choice in this matter but to grant the motion for a mistrial. Oh, oh Diane Gallagher is following this. She joins us now. Explain to us, Diane, why a mistrial, but also who our viewers just saw on the screen with that reaction to the judge. Yeah. Well, that was the mother of DeMontario Gibson, Poppy. Just a shocking moment in court. After a police officer admitted to withholding evidence, a detective under oath on the stand uh, had a videotaped interrogation, a witness statement with that victim that never turned over to the defense or the prosecution. Now, the judge granting that motion for a mistrial that came from a defense attorney for the defendants, Brandon and Gregory Case, the white father and son who are charged with attempted murder, they were accused of chasing and shooting at Gibson, a black FedEx driver who was making deliveries on a dead-end road one evening in January 2022. Uh, Gibson says he was wearing the FedEx uniform, but he was in a Hertz rental van when a white pickup truck came behind him blowing the horn. Gibson said he tried to get out of the way. That's when he saw a man with a gun and the pickup truck trying to block him in. He says that he heard several shots and then felt shots on the van there that he was driving, and the pickup truck chased him out of the neighborhood to the interstate. Gibson spoke to CNN and said that even though this happened a year and a half ago, it feels like it's been a lifetime of waiting, and now he has to start all over again. He says he feels like this was intentional. It's, it's definitely a screw-up. It's not the first one that they've had dealing with my case and other cases. Um, it's just like due to negligence on their part, they, I feel like... Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say it's... Everything was purposely done, but it's just like a lot of incompetence in that, in that police department. You know, for them to not turn over certain certain pieces of evidence, it just doesn't sit right with me. Now, CNN has reached out to the Brookhaven Police Department for comment. They have not responded to us. Gibson's attorney, Poppy, tells us that they expect that they won't get it. They will get a new trial, but it won't happen until later this year or perhaps even next year. They do plan to file a civil suit against the city of Brookhaven, they tell us. All right, Diane Gallagher, thank you for the update. Keep us posted. The next hour of CNN This Morning starts now. 
Good Friday morning, everyone. Glad you are with us. We are watching Hurricane Hillary this morning intensifying overnight into a powerful Category 4 storm as it barrels toward the West Coast. It is supposed to weaken, so that's good news by the time it reaches the U.S., but it is expected to bring heavy rain and maybe flooding to the Southwest over the weekend. This all comes as we learn FEMA is running out of money for disaster relief after a historic year of weather disasters. And we have new CNN exclusive reporting. We're learning one of Donald Trump's close allies and co-defendants was at the Capitol on January 6th with conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. President Biden about to hold a historic summit with the leaders of South Korea and Japan at Camp David, figure out how to counter the looming threat from China and North Korea. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby will join us live to preview this high-stakes meeting. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Developing this morning, Hurricane Hillary, powerful right now, a Category 4 storm rapidly intensifying. And on its way to the West Coast, it is expected to weaken by the time it reaches the U.S., but it could be the first tropical storm to hit California in more than 80 years. Forecasters say Hillary could bring significant and rare impacts, including extensive flooding. And that all comes as we learn FEMA is running out of money after a historic year of weather disasters from coast to coast. America has already had $15 billion disasters in 2023 alone. A FEMA official telling CNN the disaster relief fund could run dry by the end of the month if Congress doesn't act. We have enough funding uh, to support the, the ongoing response efforts because we take events like this into consideration. Um, but uh, it would delay, if we don't have additional funding, it would delay uh, some of the recovery projects and push them into next year. Now, the year started off with devastating flooding in California, crippling winter storms in the Northeast, then a tornado outbreak and severe weather across the Midwest and the South throughout March. Then in April, another round of destructive storms from Texas up to the Midwest. There were massive hailstorms in May, then even more rounds of severe storms in June. All of these totaled more than $1 billion in damage, and that isn't even including the recent wildfire on Maui, or historic flooding in the Northeast. Derek Van Dam is tracking the latest forecast of Hurricane Hillary. Uh, Derek, what are we expecting at this point? Well, with those billion-dollar disasters, we are now entering into the peak weeks of the Atlantic hurricane season. And here we are talking about a hurricane on our West Coast. So, wow, right? 145-mile-per-hour winds with Hurricane Hillary. This is a major Category 4 hurricane. It's south of Cabo San Lucas, and I want you to show you the projected path of this. It will weaken as it approaches the southwestern U.S., but this is going to be a significant rainmaker. So flash flooding, landslides, and mudslides all on the table this weekend into early next week. A very rare level four of four from the Weather Prediction Center. This is a high risk of excessive flash flooding. And to put this into some context, why you at home should care, let's go back a year. 2022, in Death Valley, California, we received 1.46 inches of rain in a 24-hour period. Their average annual rainfall, just over two inches. What we're forecasting for this particular location, three to four inches of rain. And you can see the devastation in the image I showed you just a moment ago. What happened in Death Valley? So we need to pay attention to this. The rainfall will be the major concern with the flash flooding. But what about the winds? Well, this storm is going to encounter some cooler water. So that's going to help weaken it as it approaches Southern California 
If it stays offshore, more, more coastal impacts. If it moves inland, it gets shredded apart. And we focus in on the flash flooding for the interior southwest. So, so many components here. Poppy and Phil will keep on track of it. Yeah, please do. Derek Van Dam, great reporting as always. Thank you. Also this breaking overnight, the administrator of Maui's Emergency Management Agency has resigned one day after defending his decision not to sound the island's siren system as those fast-moving wildfires spread through Maui. Do you regret not sounding the sirens? I, I do not. The sirens, as I had mentioned earlier, is used primarily for tsunamis. Had we sounded the siren that night, we're afraid that people would have gone Malka. And if that was the case, then they would have gone into the fire. That was Herman Andaya. He cited health reasons for his departure, but he's come under a lot of scrutiny after last week's wildfires are now being blamed for at least 111 deaths. Hawaii's attorney general will be engaging with a third-party private organization to assess the island's fire response. We know Maui's mayor says given the gravity of the destruction, the devastation, the death on Maui, a replacement for Andaya will be named as soon as possible. We have new exclusive reporting this morning about pro-Trump lawyer Kenneth Chesbrough and where he was during the insurrection on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. He was the alleged architect behind the plan to submit a fraudulent slate of electors after Trump lost the 2020 race. He was also among 19 people, including Trump, indicted this week on racketeering and other charges in Georgia's election subversion case. Our colleague and CNN senior crime and justice correspondent Shmo Porcupes joins us with his exclusive reporting. What do we need to know? Yeah, so this is a significant new information that was uncovered by our investigative team here at CNN. And it shows that he was at the Capitol, on the Capitol grounds, just outside the doors of the Capitol, surrounded by the mob of protesters, also following around uh, the leading voice of the Stop the Steal movement, conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. And the big question is, what was he doing there? He is one of the alleged co-conspirators in two cases against Donald Trump for 2020 election interference. Now for the first time, CNN has identified Kenneth Chesbro outside the Capitol on January 6th, shortly before a mob stormed the east side of the building. He followed right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones for about an hour. Chesbro is the alleged architect of a plot to use fake electors to stop the certification of Joe Biden's win. This week, he was indicted, along with Trump and 17 others in Georgia. He's also been identified as an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal case against the former president. CNN projects Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States. In the days after the November 2020 election, Chesper wrote a memo to a lawyer for Donald Trump. It's among the earliest known documents outlining the legal strategy Trump would allegedly try to use. His memo focuses on January 6th as the hard deadline with ultimate significance to determine the validity of electoral votes. Emails obtained by the January 6th committee show Chesbro later suggesting to the Trump campaign that the fear of, quote, wild chaos on that day could provoke the Supreme Court to take action. Go to the White House! At the same time, Alex Jones was helping pay for and plan the January 6th rally, urging his massive audience to gather in Washington, D.C. The night before Trump's rally, Jones would warn of a coming battle. This will be their Waterloo. This will be their destruction. We fight. We fight like hell. 
And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. When the January 6th committee asked if Chesbro was in Washington the first week of January, Chesbro pleaded the fifth. But there is no question, he was there. CNN has analyzed publicly available photos and videos from that day which show his movements. In the hours before the insurrection, he was with Alex Jones and his entourage, a short distance from the Capitol. Chesbro is here wearing a red Trump 2020 hat. As lawmakers prepare to certify the results of the election inside the building, Chesbro follows Alex Jones and a crowd of protesters as they walk towards the Capitol. Chesbro has his phone out, seemingly recording Jones's every move. Let's march around to the other side. As Jones was leading a crowd to the east side of the Capitol, the west side was breached and rioters poured in. At one point, while Chesper was on Capitol grounds, he appears to show something on his phone to a member of Jones's security team. Then Jones and Chesper climbed the Capitol steps. There is no indication Chesbro entered the Capitol building or engaged in violence. But shortly after Chesbro and Jones left the steps on the east side, the Capitol was breached again as the mob poured into the doors. In all, more than 2,000 rioters would enter the building, vandalizing and looting, attempting to prevent a joint session of Congress from counting the Electoral College votes. The House committee investigating January 6 would eventually call it the final step in Donald Trump's plan to try and overturn the election, a plan that started in earnest with Kenneth Chesbro. And an attorney for Mr. Chesbro released a statement to CNN saying that they were going to allow this to play out in court. Chesbro is expected. He's one of the people who is expected to surrender in Georgia by the end of next week. All right, Shimon Prokopez, our K-File team as well with the reporting. Thanks so much. I want to bring in now our panel for more on this. Alyssa Farrah Griffin, CNN political commentator and former Trump White House communications director. Basil Smeichel, Democratic strategist and former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party. And Shane Goldmacher, national political correspondent at The New York Times. Uh, Alyssa, what's your reaction when you see yet another thread that seems to connect to absolutely everything? those well, last three months of the administration. I mean, just only the best people around Donald Trump. Listen, I never dealt with Kenneth, Kenneth Cheesebro, but he was one of these attorneys who came in when the former president stopped listening to his White House counsel. When Pat Cipollone and Pat Philbin said, there is no path for recourse, you are not overturning the election. There actually, as we saw in the indictment, there will be violence in the streets if you try to do this. He then turned to some of these fringier figures. And I'm old enough to remember 10 years ago in the GOP, if you were palling around with Alex Jones, you would have been chased out of respectable GOP circles. This is an incredibly fringe, incredibly dangerous figure. But he was very much involved in this effort, we now know, and had a close line to the White House. Jane, do you think this has legal implications for the president's pending cases um, for, for, the, for the president? Not just for Cheesebro? No, I don't think it necessarily has the implications for the president, but it does speak to sort of the interplay here between the legal team, the events of January 6th, and that the the fringe became the center of the Republican Party at this moment. Alex Jones, as you just said, he was very much the fringe of the Republican Party, and yet the people who were with him, the, the lawyers that were advising Alex Jones, were suddenly also part of the Electoral College scheme. And so it all came together, and it came together in a really terrible, violent way on January 6th. Yeah. Um, Shana, I want to ask you, the front runner in the Republican race is the former president. These, all these legal cases are surrounding him. The individual that was supposed to be the 
uh, likely candidate who could take down the current frontrunner, Ron DeSantis, has had a rough couple of months heading into a debate, very big debate. We now know apparently what a lot of the people who operate on a super PAC would like him to say and do at that <laughs> debate. Walk people through this really remarkable uh, story you, Maggie Haberman, Jonathan Swan, have yeah. in the New York Times about this memo, all these documents for the debate. Yeah. So we don't know whether Trump is going to be on that debate stage, but we do know DeSantis is the, the leading Republican who has said he will be on that debate stage. And it's a big moment. He's had a couple of rough months, as you said. And so he's getting a lot of advice. And really notably, the super PAC backing him put together a memo and polling and posted it on basically one of the company's websites that are working for the super PAC, saying what they think he should do. And some of this stuff is... I think at this point, undercutting him, because if he says the very lines they've outlined, how he should attack Chris Christie, how he should attack Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, and how he should not, in fact, attack Donald Trump, it puts him in a box. He, if he does the things that the people advising him are telling him to do, then he looks like he's just listening to the people advising him, and that's never good to, uh, on a national debate stage. There's a reason, Basil, as a strategist, albeit for the other party, there's a reason that you're supposed to have some sort of wall between a pack and a candidate, because it's not supposed to be all about unlimited money, but you know, but it goes, the money can go to the pack, right? right? right. There's not supposed to be coordination. Right. And this is why I think your piece is so good about pointing out the history of this, that you know, oftentimes these plans go up on obscure parts of the internet. This one was like right on their website. Just explain to the American people the significance of this and what this sort of lays out to bear for everyone about how things actually work with money in politics. Well, no pressure at all. I, uh, it, it, <laughs> in 30 it, seconds. In 30 seconds. <laughs> You're right. The super, there is not to be any coordination with uh, super PACs. And oftentimes, candidates may not listen to the super PACs, quite frankly. But they do raise, as entities, a tremendous amount of money. They can bring on staff members that the campaign otherwise would not bring on. And they can run ads and get information out to the public that the campaign might not, should not, or uh, for some reason is hampered from doing. And so this, this, some people would call it dark money, and that you could use that term and or that, quali that qualifier uh, for that. But the reality is they are a very significant part of the political process, and they can use some of those dollars to do the kind of research to be able to help a candidate. The candidate shouldn't know that. <laughs> the candidate shouldn't have any part of that. Maybe what they do is actually send that information out to the surrogates so that they can act in concert with what the candidate in the campaign is uh, are doing. Uh, but, yeah, this is a big part of the political process. It's an important part of the political process. Not everybody agrees that they should exist, though. Mm -hmm. um, Alyssa, we asked Governor Chris Christie when he was on a short while ago about uh, he was targeted in the DeSantis uh, memo or DeSantis Super PAC memo a couple of times, several times. This is what he said. There is no DeSantis campaign. The entire DeSantis campaign is being run by the Never Back Down Super PAC. Uh, they've gotten all the people at the campaign fired that they didn't like. Um, and now they're writing strategy memos and putting them on the Internet where everybody can see them. Um, look, this just shows you it's not easy to run for president, everybody. And, it, and if you can't run for president in a way that doesn't create embarrassing process stories, you know, multiple times a week, you certainly can't uh, run the White House. And that's my biggest question about posting this, uh, allowing people like Shane to scoop it. Uh, <laughs> jerk move, man. Right. Um, but great to read. Because it just creates another news cycle. And then to Shane's point, like, how does this not get in your head as a candidate? 
Walk me through this. Yeah, as as an advisor, like what are you doing right now? Governor DeSantis has the most to lose in the GOP debate, assuming that Donald Trump doesn't show up. He had sky high expectations. He's only continued to go lower in the polls. And I think he's running into a problem that frankly, some of us predicted who knew him in the House. He's a pretty green candidate. He, you know, had some successes in Florida. He did not have a real strong operation around him. I mean, this is honestly the least of his worries. I mean, he had the staffer who posted a neo-Nazi video. He had that offensive pride ad that he put out. It's looked like amateur hour on the DeSantis campaign. Mm -hmm. And he had tried to argue that the adults will be in charge in my administration. At one point, you know, we won't have leaks like the Trump White House did. They've got a leak in chaos every day. So I think he is in a position where I kind of expect to see after this debate, someone else pass him as the number two in the race. You know, I don't get often uh, opportunities to burnish my science fiction interests. Go for it. Blade Runner, one of my favorite movies, great line (laughs) from that movie. The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. Mm -hmm. And if you apply that to a Ron DeSantis, he did so much at the beginning, all this flurry, all this anti-wokeness. And now he has really nothing to back that up. There's no there's no more pathway for him. But your questions to Chris Christie are very important, because whether it's Ron DeSantis or Chris Christie, How do you try to make a case for a general election and still get out of your primary? 2012, Chris Christie hugs Barack Obama, then President Obama, after Superstorm Sandy, and spent every way possible to figure out how to explain that away. It's a similar situation that I think happens now. How How do you approach Democrats and independents and say, I can win this general election, and you can't even explain how to work across the aisle to get out of your primary. Mm-hmm. That is a problem I think all of those candidates have. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. no question about it. Um, Shane, great reporting as always. Basil, appreciate uh, the science fiction reference there. <laughs> that, people who knew him in the House reference, <laughs> there's depth to that. For those of us who were there, Alyssa, thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Well, also this morning, Canadian officials are warning that the wildfires burning in parts of the country are, quote, unprecedented. Thousands have been ordered to evacuate. Also today, President Biden will host a trilateral summit at Camp David with the leaders of both Japan and South Korea. And John Kirby is with us next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, for the first time ever, President Biden will host the leaders of both Japan and South Korea at Camp David in Maryland. The trilateral summit is meant to serve as a show of force in the face of persistent missile threats from North Korea and China's military maneuvering in the region. Joining us now is John Kirby. He's the National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the White House. John, thanks for taking the time uh, for us at Camp David. Um, This is very significant on a historic level, no question, but also in a kind of near-term level from a defense posture, from an alliance perspective in the Indo-Pacific. What is the primary goal the president has coming out of that summit in terms of deliverables? This is really going to be about a future-focused agenda today, Phil. I mean, you're right. There's a lot of history here. It is a historic meeting. It builds on two and a half years of effort and energy by President Biden to really revitalize our alliances and partnerships throughout the Indo-Pacific region. But what these three leaders are going to be focused on today is the future. And in just a few hours, when they stand behind me here and do a press conference, they're going to announce a set of initiatives uh, and and a framework for making sustainable all these commitments that we're going to be making. And it's not just in the security realm, although that certainly will be front and center, given all the threats and challenges. But it's on the economic front, on supply chains, on microelectronics, diplomacy, people-to-people ties. There's a whole spate uh, of terrific initiatives that will come out of this meeting today. There's no question that uh, 
this administration and uh, the leaders in Japan and China are, are closer probably than I think they've ever been, certainly uh, as you know, a trilateral basis, but also on a bilateral basis to some degree. However, would you say there's complete right. alignment in terms of views of China between the three countries? I think that all our friends and partners in the Indo-Pacific are coming to a common set of perspectives about the, the threats and the challenges posed by the PRC, their ec economic intimidation, their physical coercion in maritime claims. Uh, there's many nations that, that are, are really, I think, coming together and unifying around this common set of threats and challenges. Uh, I'll let the leaders of South Korea and Japan speak for themselves, but uh, I, I clearly, at least in terms of our perspective, uh, we all recognize in a trilateral format like today, we all recognize uh, that there's more we need to be doing to stand up to that kind of coercion and that kind of intimidation. And it's not just the threats posed by the PRC, it's the threat posed by North Korea. Uh, obviously, uh, that's a real key concern for our right. South Korean allies, but it has of late become an even more significant concern uh, to our Japanese allies as well. Yeah, certainly given the scale of some of the missile tests. I do want to ask your response to China's framing of this as the establishment of a sort of mini NATO. Yeah, not true. I mean, that's just, again, the PRC, I think, overreacting here. Nobody's talking about a, uh, a binding alliance here between the three countries. Nobody's not, talking though? about an Asian NATO. What we are talking about, what we are, well, it's a good question. What we are talking about is ways to uh, better uh, codify and institutionalize uh, trilateral cooperation across a wide range of issues, not just in the security realm. And so, again, you'll see these leaders come together today and announce a set of initiatives that we hope will be sustainable for the long term. And part of the way we're going to try to do that is make these meetings uh, on an annual basis, uh, announce some annual obligations and commitments that we're willing to make to one another. Uh, but nobody's talking about uh, the need for uh, an Asian NATO. I, I think it's important to remember, Phil, that five of our seven of the United States is five of our seven treaty alliances are actually in the in the, in the Indo-Pacific region. Right. So we already have a vast network of alliances and partnerships that pre-exist. And what the president has really tried to focus on these two and a half years is shoring them up and revitalizing them because they had not all been treated uh, with the appropriate amount of, of dignity and respect by the previous administration. You mentioned North Korea. I, I want to ask you about uh, the U.S. soldier who walked over into, ran over into North Korea, Travis King. We've heard a North Korean version of events. My primary question right now is from the U.S. side, given the emphasis this administration has put on getting Americans detained in foreign countries back, do you view Travis King in a similar regard, given the fact he went over there himself? Are sanctions a possibility? Is a prisoner well, trade a possibility, given how he went there? He's an American soldier, Phil. He's an American soldier, and he's an active duty soldier at that, and we want to get him back. Uh, we want to get him back to the United States. We want to get him back to his family. We don't really know the motivations uh, that led him uh, to walk across uh, the, 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 the border there, the DMZ. Uh, we're, we just don't really know. We haven't had a chance to talk to him. Uh, and so we're trying very hard to get some knowledge here about where he is, how he is, and what conditions is he, is he being held? And we have communicated, again, through various channels uh, to North Korea that, that we want to know more about him, but we just as critically want him back. So we are working that as hard as we can. It's a little bit more difficult dealing with North Korea than it is with some other nations in which there are wrongfully detained uh, Americans that we can negotiate and have and we have diplomatic relations with, such as Russia. Uh, we just don't have that uh, facility there uh, in Pyongyang to be able to do that. 
you mentioned Russia. The last one I want to ask you about, we, we, our colleagues Jennifer Hansler and Kylie Atwood reported that the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, had spoken to Paul Whelan uh, this week. Is there any update on that, given it, what now seems like the possibility that he may have to serve his entire term unless something changes? We're still working very, very hard to get Paul and to get Evan home. Uh, and we do have, of course, uh, we have the ability to communicate directly with Russian officials on that. And we are working it very, very hard every single day. I don't have any breaks in or, or, or deals or negotiations to speak to today. And even if we had made any significant progress, it would be difficult for me to talk about it publicly because that could maybe uh, could torpedo the, the uh, negotiations. But we are working on it very, very hard. Secretary Blinken was grateful for the opportunity to talk to Paul. We have a line of communication with him that we, uh, that we can take advantage of, and that's a good thing. Um, and uh, we also keep that line of communication open uh, with his family. We want to make sure that they're fully informed. But no, I, I don't have any breaks in the de uh, deal to, uh, to announce today, except to say we're at it. We're working on it very, very hard. Yeah, and I appreciate you mentioning Evan Gerskovich, our Wall Street Journal colleague who's over uh, wrongfully detained as well. John Kirby for us in Camp David. Big day for the administration. Thanks so much, sir. It is. You yeah. bet. Thanks. Really interesting interview. All right. When Rudy Giuliani was elected mayor of New York, he praised the peaceful transfer of power, not only for the city, but in national elections. Well, now he faces charges related to his role in trying to break that tradition one of the producers from the CNN original series on Giuliani is here next. American democracy is a beautiful thing to watch. And the transition of power in America and in New York City is really a model and an example to the rest of the world as to how a people should govern themselves. That was then New York City Mayor-elect Rudy Giuliani. That was 1993. He was graciously thanking his opponent, Mayor David Dinkins, after defeating him in the election. His comment then was perhaps unremarkable, right? You'd expect it. But fast forward 30 years, and it is stunning, as Giuliani now stands accused of trying to subvert an American election. He is one of 18 people indicted alongside of former President Trump in Georgia. Giuliani faces 13 charges under the state's RICO law, which is similar to the anti-racketeering law that Giuliani himself used in the 80s to go after organized crime when he was a prosecutor. Joining us now is Ken Friedman. He served as the spokesperson for Mayor Rudy Giuliani in 1993's mayoral campaign. He was also a consulting producer for the CNN original series Giuliani, What Happened to America's Mayor, which you can watch on CNN this Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern. I was just thinking, welcome did you write those remarks that he just read in 93? <laughs> no, they, those were his remarks. Those were but they matter. and they mattered. And he was gracious in, you know, he was gracious then. Right. He was gracious in defeat in 89 and he was gracious in, in, in victory in, in 93 and in 97. What happened? He, he became less gracious or ungracious, let's say, or uncivil, worse yet. Um, you know, you fast forward to. His, his uh, days working with Donald Trump, and you saw the transformation almost, almost immediately. Um, you know, Trump has a way of corrupting people's souls, I think, and uh, naming their strike price. Uh, and he figured it out with, with Rudy, you know, and Rudy was desperate for continued access and power and relevance, certainly. Um, and there's only one president at a time. So while he dismissed him when he was mayor, suddenly he was a, a golden 
goose to him. You know, traveling the world really without portfolio, you know, selling himself as a cybersecurity expert and um, really providing no uh, counsel or advice, you know, both in the private sector or as a, as a government liaison, if you will, unofficially. So, When is the... The, the documentary series is we were talking about during the break. I've watched it. It's, it's excellent. Um, and it's, just, it's fascinating to follow the arc because you forget so much from that 93 campaign, the whole kind of way up from his time as a U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Um, people forget he was the clear frontrunner in the 2008 Republican primary for a period of time sure. before his campaign crashed and burned. What, was, what precipitated uh, to change the, the move into Trump orbit? The move, is it purely just power or was there a series of events that led to it? I, I think it was, yeah, it was, they already knew each other, yeah. you know, from, from the, his mayoral days. Trump was really not a presence at City Hall. He got very few contracts. Um, and, uh, and he was sort of dismissed as sort of an outer borough right. developer, like the whole if you will. relationship inverted. And then, and then the relationship inverted. And, and, you know, and, you know, I think Rudy decided if I can't be the king, I'll, I'll be the kingmaker. Mm. Um, but Trump doesn't abide kingmakers. He's the king, you know. So, what do you see when you watch Rudy Giuliani now? For example, go on other networks and, def- and defend himself in the face of these RICO charges. Like to watch him as someone who doesn't know him the way you do. Yeah, it seems like he really believes all of that and what he's saying. What do you see? Well, he does. He does believe it because he's flashing back to his days. You know, having rounded up the mob and white collar criminals. But he knows the law then. Intimately, and so does Fannie Willis. And, you know, but he, do, he apparently doesn't uh, accept the, the, the fact that, you know, he is ensnared in a, in a, in a, in a conspiracy. Um, and they've got the goods on him down there. I think I said on this show, you know, probably two years ago, that it was uh, inevitable he would be indicted in, in Georgia. Right. Do you, I, th- I think the one question we've all had, particularly if you, you look at the financial straits, you look at the scale of kind of yeah. what he's facing on the legal side, is a plea deal or, you know, turning for prosecutors something he, you think he would ever consider? Uh, everybody considers it. Nobody goes to jail for someone else, except Michael Cohen and Alan Weisselberg, but they did short stints, right? right? And Trump apparently made it worth their while. I don't think Rudy will go to jail for Donald Trump, if that's what you're asking. That's what I'm asking. Yeah, no. What should we expect on Saturday night for people who haven't seen the series? Well, it's it's the man in full. That's that was what we were going for from cradle to now, if you will, from Brooklyn to today to show his evolution um, as probably the best first term mayor in the city's history, a transformative mayor. I mean, you guys know we got 2000 murders and in the early 90s and 600 the first year of Giuliani. And I'm still 600 too many, but quality of life improved, uh, street safety, people's perception of the I think cities. about that a lot when I walk around the streets of New York. You what? I think, I think about it a lot when yeah, I walk around the streets of New York. You, you know, remember. How he turned. Yes. Yes. And that's why this is so much more striking. I know. The, we have the frame of reference. We know how good it can be and how good it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, listen, we all evolve. Some of us... For the better and some of us for the worse, you know, 
And I'm told our personalities are formed at the age of four. And after that, you got to really want to modify them. Four years old, yeah. No, my kids are beyond that now. I have lost all hope. (laughs) Mine too. I think it is fair to say in Giuliani's case, there has been a modification. Um, Can we really appreciate your time? Of course. Everybody definitely needs to watch uh, on Saturday as well. Thank Thank you you. so much. Appreciate it. And you can watch the CNN original series, Giuliani, What Happened to America's Mayor, tomorrow at 8 p.m. on CNN. Well, Canadian officials are warning that the wildfires burning in parts of the country are, quote, unprecedented. Thousands have been ordered to evacuate. And school districts across the country are struggling to find bus drivers. Just as the school year is about to begin, why that shortage has not improved in some areas. That's next. Officials in Canada's Northwest Territories calling the 2003 230, I should say, wildfires burning for days there, unprecedented. And today is the deadline for nearly 20,000 residents to evacuate their homes in the capital of Yellowknife. Meantime, southern British Columbia also on high alert as several fires rage in the West Kelowna area. That's where thousands of residents are under evacuation orders as well. It's about 175 miles east of Vancouver. Well, parents aren't the only ones racing to get ready for the school year and get their Amazon orders and the boxes oh, and the class lists and boxes. the books that they were supposed to read. Yeah. <laughs> well, the districts themselves, they're also in that process right now, struggling to find bus drivers to fill out their routes to bring students to classes. Low pay, off hours, and increased competition from companies like FedEx and Amazon are all factors making it harder for schools to find qualified candidates. CNN's Athena Jones has the story. Good morning. Well, look, this is an issue all over the country. There are more than 13,000 school districts, and it's really a district-by-district situation. Some say they are hundreds of bus drivers short. Others need maybe another 20 drivers. And most districts rely on technology to help with uh, routing buses and communicating with parents. But as we've seen in Louisville, Kentucky, and other places in recent days, that those solutions don't always work. We are about 58 bus drivers short. From North Carolina. It's just unbelievable. To Louisiana. They knew that school was coming. They knew the problems that they had, and they did nothing to solve them. A rough start to the school year as districts across the country face a shortage of bus drivers. Each year, about half a million buses transport some 25 million children. But low pay, odd hours, and increased competition from companies like FedEx and Amazon are some of the factors making it harder to find drivers. I have not heard from our members in any state, whether it's a smaller state like Montana or Wyoming, or the larger states like New York, Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, and others that are not experiencing the driver shortage. Albemarle County, Virginia, getting rid of some bus stops. It breaks my heart that we had to do that. Uh, Right now, it is a driver shortage. Jefferson County, Colorado, creating what it calls bus hubs, combining stops in a central location. Some districts using staggered schedules. We have four start times. An early start school is paired with a later start school. Facing a driver shortage, Kentucky's largest school district contracted with a company to map out new routes. But the plan failed, leading to a disastrous first day of kindergarten for Bethany and Ryan Bauman's daughter and forcing officials to cancel school for more than a week. It's like they couldn't get a hold of any of the bus drivers. That morning, Bethany says they waited 40 minutes for the bus before she gave up and made the 10-minute drive herself. That evening, they waited more than two hours for the bus before calling the police frantic. And then that's whenever the police had asked me, um, 
Like what, what was she wearing and what does she look like? And it got really real to me in that moment. I left at 7.30 and I went to Target to buy an air tag to put on her. They say the bus finally arrived three hours late, the driver nearly missing the stop. I had like waved her down and I look on the bus and Lily, our kid is the last kid on the bus. Lily won't be riding the bus anymore. The superintendent vowing to do better when school restarts. We made mistakes, but we've owned up to them and we're going to fix them. But any long-term solution may have to address drivers' paychecks. One of the key components of, of this shortage is compensation for drivers, and that is in salaries and fringe benefits. It's in the workday that they're having. It's in training and assistance that they get to do their jobs. It's trying to expand out hours so that they have a full-time job. And in Jefferson County, Kentucky, that encompasses Louisville, about 65% of the students rely on these buses. Soon parents there will be able to download an app to track their child's bus. But today, when elementary and middle school students are heading back to class, student, uh, parents will be able to call a hotline if their child's bus doesn't arrive on time. But really a, a serious problem uh, across America. It's devastating to watch. Clearly a big problem. It's great reporting, great piece. Thank you, Athena. Sorry about this, Phil. What now? But it's been 13 seasons since the Yankees won the last World Series. What about the Twins? And that's been a long time, too. And the way they've been playing lately, that streak will probably continue this year. Harry Enton has this morning's number for you. Of course. Mets fan. Aren't you a Mets fan, Harry? No? I'm a hater. I'm a hater of all things. I'm just going to preface, this is verbal assault. Uh, <laughs> you guys forcing me to have to read this. Tonight, the New York Yankees host the Red Sox. It's usually a very highly anticipated rivalry game. This season, as much as it pains me to say it, the Yankees, they're off. I have so many thoughts about Brett. No, <laughs> the team's having one of the worst seasons in decades, dead last in the AL East behind, even more painfully, Boston. CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton has been plotting this for months. <laughs> oh, What's the painful morning number? Oh, this is so beautiful, Phil. Yeah, isn't it, though? Ten-year-old me loves this moment. I can't believe they're allowing me to do this. Look, in 2023, the Yankees have won under 50% of their games. This is the latest in a season they've been under 500 since 1995. So it's been nearly 30 years. And I want to take us down memory lane. The last time the Yankees were so bad... The top film was Batman Forever. The top song was Gangsta's Paradise. And the top toy was Pogs. Remember Pogs? Those were pretty cool. Um, just for the record, what happened the year after 95 with the Yankees? Uh, the World Series was the answer you were looking for. What happened in 95? They made the playoffs. Who was the first baseman <laughs> in 1995? Don Manningly. Not my father. However, <laughs> it gets me a free drink in New York. I'll say he is. <laughs> I, I have nothing to add you have to this <laughs> fabulous conversation, actually. I just want to know, you know, I'm not alone in thinking that the Yankees stink. Who MLB fans hate the most? In 2017, they pulled at the Yankees. 2006, they pulled it. It was the Yankees. 1994, they pulled it. It was the Yankees. But I don't want to leave you out of this, Thank Poppy. You, I want to know that Poppy's so 2023 Minnesota Twins have done better than the Yay! Yankees. They've won over 50% of their games, and they are in first place in the AL Central, unlike the Yankees, who are in dead last. You know it's who, beautiful. And you know who nobody hates? The Minnesota Twins. Obviously. Right. Nobody hates the you Twins. You can't hate anything from And Minnesota. I love both of you. So Thank there you. we go. Thank you. Happy Friday. Happy first week. Thank that you. was Thanks, Harry. great. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, to less fun news, concerning news, Hurricane Hillary intensifying in the Pacific. It's now a major cap for hurricane. 
has parts of the United States bracing for rare threats not seen in decades. We've got more on that ahead. So Native Americans die from preventable illness and disease at higher rates than other Americans, partly due to a struggle to find adequate health care. This week's CNN Hero is working to change that. Our reservation is about 30 miles from the Canadian border in north central Montana. You're probably about a good three hours to major hospitals. Okay, we're on our way. We know the need is huge for transportation. The majority of our people are living in poverty. If I didn't physically transport them, I would help them with food, a hotel, or gas. I started getting into the nutrition of it. If we could eat healthy, it will reduce our risk of cancer. Hi! We have done distributions of fresh fruits and vegetables, fresh eggs, and we joined in a collaboration with our tribe to help harvest our buffalo. Prior to my diagnosis of cancer, I thought my life was based on my professional career and my education. But now I know that this is my calling. Well, to see Tesha Hawley's incredible full story and how she uses buffalo and horses to help heal her community, go to CNNHeroes.com. It's Friday. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks have for a good have week, Have a pal. great vacation. I will. See CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.